Hey everybody, before we get into this episode about the Just Say Yes album, I just want to let you know that TDR Records just did a pressing of Just Say Yes on some beautiful variants of vinyl. Only 500 of these records exist and the entire layout is elaborate and beautiful. So if you want to own a little collectible piece of punchline history, head over to tdrrecords.com to get yours before they're all gone. And now, enjoy the episode. Previously on A Band Called Punchline. With Paul leaving, it really flipped a switch for us and the only way for us to proceed was to be mad greg was definitely like the number one draft pick greg isn't just greg he's greg wood the first show in long island was in two days which meant i would have only that amount of time to learn a full set including proficiency enough with the guitar parts to also be singing at the same time there was definitely some adrenaline going i didn't even think about the fact that we were throwing water on people holding electric instruments wow we were being stupid So yeah, I had to just sit around and wait for them to realize I wasn't in the band. And I thought, man, if these guys ask me to be a permanent member of the band, it's an opportunity of a lifetime. Via hip top for life. I said to PJ, get on here and sit crisscross applesauce and I'll push you around. Me and Steve are just cruising around this festival, taking turns riding on the cart and pushing each other. I do think there was a bit of a culture clash when I joined on both sides. We weren't against trying to think a little deeper and a little further about songwriting, about what makes a great song. I went to visit Bayside in the studio. They were recording with these two producers, Shep and Kenny. In classic form, you know, we just went with the producers that our friends were using as well because that seemed like a good option, right? The first Japan tour, I cannot even put into words. It was the most amazing realization of a dream. And I would see 37 a lot in TV and movies and books and this and that but it's pretty cool thinking about the fact that if somebody likes our band when they see that number somewhere they think of us so with 30 on the horizon i just wondered if i was ever going to arrive at the future that i had always aspired to it felt like we had some momentum going the new album was out it seemed like people liked it did i see anything coming ever but it really went from civil to almost a fond farewell within weeks and our goodbye was sweet At the end of the 2006 summer tour, Punchline once again found themselves having to replace a guitarist. Having a member of the band live several states away was not an ideal situation, and this time the choice was clear, and as a bonus, close to home. Chris Fafalius remembers. For years now at this point, we felt like we had to be on the road nonstop. Only reason to not be on tour is if we were writing and recording, but it had been a non-stop marathon for years at this point. And at the end of the Bowling for Soup tour in the summer of 2006, we had a second to go home and catch our breath and figure out what the next step was going to be. Guitarist and vocalist Steve Sabosley. There was a super obvious choice of the next guitar player, our friend John Bellin, who was from the same hometown as us. Original punchline drummer PJ Caruso. I've known John Bellin essentially my entire life. Our parents graduated high school together. Well, his dad graduated high school with both my mom and dad. John Bellin had been our friend for a long time. We were from the same hometown and our bands played together. He was in the band Logic, which was a big inspiration to us when we were starting out. And uh, he was a really clear and obvious choice to ask to be in our band. Hi, my name is John Bellin. I'm the singer of the band Gene the Werewolf from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
I was the guitar player for Punchline from 2006 to 2009. I'd known PJ the longest. Uh, Our dads went to high school together, and I think even graduated together. And I think they actually sang in a men's choir together. Our dads were actually in a men's choir together that was called Pro Musica. And they would sing at weddings, and they even sang the national anthem at a few pirate games, which was really cool when we were little to get to go down in the field. I didn't meet Steve or Chris probably until around 1996 when Punchline was just getting started. Uh, and I was playing guitar in a hardcore band from Bell Vernon called Logic. John Bellin went to our high school. He was a little bit older. And when I first came to know him, he was friends with my older brother's friends. And he played in a band called Chimney Sweepin' Jack. Whenever I joined Chris and Steve to make Punchline, I really had never played pop punk before or anything with any real, you know, fast tempos or anything. And I used the Chimney Sweeping Jack demo tape slash performance at Danielle Anderson's graduation party and Nick's performance on those to figure out how to play drums in a pop punk band. I always say that that was his best band and he's gone downhill since since then. <laughs> but then I realized that that's me. But it's a joke. He's a very talented songwriter and oh my god, such a good singer. I think one of my earliest memories also of meeting the guys in Punchline was because we were both in bands from Bell Vernon, we all went to Bell Vernon area high school. Uh, And after we had graduated, because I'm a couple years older than the guys in Punchline, we would go, when I was in Logic, we would go and we'd flyer for our shows, and our bass player at the time was a senior in high school, and he went to school with the guys in Punchline. And when we'd have a show coming up, we'd have our bass player put flyers up in the high school and try to get people to come to our shows, and the guys in Punchline, (laughs) I don't know why, but they would would go and rip them down. (laughs) And I don't... I don't think they'd ever admitted to it to this day, but I remember we all, uh, the guys in Logic and me, called them up on the phone and we did a three-way call, which I don't even know if that exists anymore, uh, but we all yelled at them. And then all of a sudden we were just cool after that and we were all friends. We definitely didn't tear down their flyers. We loved their band. It was a flyer that had the Beatles on it and it said Logic. And the story was that they heard that we thought it was disrespectful to the Beatles to put them on a flyer or something like that. And so we ripped them down, which never happened. To be honest, he was kind of my hero in high school. I thought he was was so cool. I just loved, I mean, I loved those Chimney Sweep and Jack songs, just like I loved Weezer and Green Day and bands like that. Just like we'd been on our musical journey with Punchline ever since high school, Bellin had been on his own journey as well. But as Punchline developed over the years, John was playing with this band, The Berlin Project, who were our very best friends in in Pittsburgh. They were like our best band buddy. And what was crazy is that we were playing shows with The Berlin Project, and then all of a sudden, two of our friends joined their band and sort of like took over the band. So we we played a bunch of shows together. We did a lot of touring together. And now we needed a guitar player. And of course, John Bellin. 
He's a great singer. He's a great guitar player. And now we all live in the same town. I, I just got it in my head that I really, really wanted to be a professional musician. I wanted to not necessarily, quote unquote, become famous, but you know, I wanted to do music full time. And Punchline at this period of time, probably around 2005, was doing it. They were out on the road. They were playing really, really good tours. And me, I was kind of like not in a band and I was kind of just doing anything I could to just fall into that life because that's what I wanted to do. And Steve, I remember, came up to me and asked me if I wanted to go and do merch for Punchline. And I instantly said yes. Um, I think the tour that I did it was um, Sullivan and Bayside. And we toured for, you know, almost a month, I guess, in 2006 in the wintertime. And I just did merch for Punchline and uh, didn't really love doing it. But I was thinking along the lines of like, you know, hey, maybe I could meet somebody on the road. Uh, maybe I could kind of meet somebody who's in the industry, maybe to get my foot in the door, uh, all the while hanging out with my really, really good friends. The fact that Bellin had already been on tour with us like less than a year earlier than that just showed that. Not only was he our friend and he was good at music and we lived close to him, but also that we can get along when we're in close quarters together for a long period of time. That was just another check in the box of like, why on earth wouldn't we ask Bellin? It just made sense. On one of the tours that John uh, Bellin was doing merch for us, Greg Wood had lost his voice completely, like could not sing a note. And so what we did was is kind of like a Wizard of Oz singer thing where we would set up a monitor and a microphone just off stage and Bellin sang all of Greg Wood's parts, including whenever he was singing lead, which was funny because Greg kind of pretended like he was singing too, but like made it obvious that he wasn't. And then we would do this big reveal at the end of our set where John would just come out from behind the curtain and sing. And we would just, you know, introduce who he was and say that he was helping us out for the night. And that was really funny. And really, I mean, he sang really good. I'm not going to say that that's what earned him the job because he was probably a shoe in anyways, but uh, definitely didn't hurt. I remember one night in probably about 2006, uh, we had just got done with multiple tours and I had done merch for all those tours with Punchline. And we had been home a couple weeks and Steve had called me one night and said, you know, asked what I was doing. And he said, hey, we're all up at our friend Johnny's house. Why don't you stop up? We're going to have a couple drinks. I was like, yeah, yeah, cool, man. I'll be up. Um, so I went over to Johnny's house and we were just, you know, having a few drinks and talking and Steve said to me, yeah, you know, we, um, we got some bad news and we found out that, uh, Greg Wood is thrown in the towel and he's not going to be in our band anymore. I said, oh really? And he goes, yeah, it's really, really tough because we have a tour coming up and, you know, he said he would do the one last tour, but then after that tour, he's, he's quitting. And I remember not thinking anything of it, just being, oh man, that's that's terrible. You know, I couldn't even imagine being in that situation. And then out of nowhere, not expecting it, Steve goes, yeah, so uh, do you want to be our guitar player? And I said, what? I mean, like caught me off guard. I didn't know what to say. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, like, you know, I want to be your guitar player. I want to go out. And I thought to myself, this is going to be awesome. The cool thing about it was, as I said, yes, it was going to be an all Bell Vernon lineup because me, Chris, Steve and PJ were all from Bell Vernon. And we were so sure that he was going to say yes, that we uh, proactively bought a shrimp ring tray to uh, celebrate whenever he joined the band. 
Steve came prepared and went out to Giant Eagle and bought a shrimp cocktail ring. And he turned around and opened Johnny's refrigerator and pulled it out of the refrigerator. And we all celebrated me entering the band um, by drinking beer and eating shrimp. (laughs) With the lineup quickly solidified, it was time to focus on what was next for Punchline. Having left Fueled by Ramen Records, the band was now fully DIY and independent again, but with a lot of optimism for what lay ahead. Chris Fafalius recalls. Over the course of the few years that we were on the label, we ended up feeling like a really small fish in a big pond by the end. And I think that we were pretty confident in our decision to like go out on our own and that, you know, why would we want to be somewhere where we're not a priority? And it really made sense to us. You know, the details are a little hazy. I feel like... We could have maybe stayed on Fuel by Ramen, but we kind of felt like we were the neglected child who turned 18 and now we were, we were leaving. We're going out on our own. We got we to gotta find ourselves. Um, I think that I was a little bit bummed by that because I thought to myself, well, here I am. I'm going to be joining a band with establishment, you know, with the label. And then when I joined the band, they were like... <laughs> Yeah, we're going to not be on Fuel by Ramen anymore, and we're going to become free agents and open ourselves out to other options. And I was just like, oh, you know, all right. But then again, you know, I couldn't really complain because I was the new guy, and I was just happy to be playing music. I kind of wish we would have stayed on Fuel by Ramen, but I don't know what we would have done differently. So going out on our own, I think, was really good for us growing and developing, not just as band guys, but also as humans. Once Bellin joined the band, we got to work. We couldn't afford to mess around. I mean, this was our career. We had to make it happen. So we started practicing in the basement of my house. I mean, at this point, we're getting into our late 20s. And as that happens, naturally, the stakes become higher. Guys, it's time to make this happen. Or, you know, what are you you doing? I will say that one of the perks of being a band whose members are all from the same hometown is the fact that you never have to drive too far to practice. And man, thankfully, Chris Fafalius let us practice in his basement. And Chris lived five minutes away from me. And for being in uh, tens of thousands of bands, okay, I'm just like probably like five or six bands where I had to travel great distances just to practice, this was an absolute relief. I think it took Paul leaving and having the absence of Paul for me to realize, to see myself more clearly in my abilities. And I think I, over the course of 37 Everywhere touring, realized that I needed to step it up somehow. And I really felt like, for me, that the best way I could contribute would be to just keep writing songs, write so many songs that like you're bound to have a few really good ones. So I was doing a lot of demoing in our downtime on a Boss BR8 8-track. So at this time, we were practicing a lot, and obviously, Bellin had to learn the old Punchline songs, and we were working on new songs, too, but we also weren't shying away from touring. We felt like that was so important. We couldn't 
come to a halt or people would forget about us. That's what I really feel like that's what we are afraid of. If we stop touring, if we even take a break for six months or something, people are going to forget about us. Most of the tours at this point, we were getting ourselves, meaning you're out there and you're touring and you know, hey, other band on this tour, like maybe the next tour, we should do a tour together. They come up really naturally once you're in the circuit. So we, while we didn't have a label, we had plenty going on and a little time to figure out what we're going to do for this next record. The first tour that I did with Punchline, I believe, was in the late fall or winter of 2006. Um, and it would believe it was Punchline and headlining was Spittlefield, Valencia, and a band called Boys Like Girls. And I remember just thinking... It was the coldest tour in the world. We were we would drive in the van, and I can remember laying down in the back seat and just looking up the windows, and uh, the windows just being frosted, uh, and just being oh my gosh, you know. But being just absolutely ecstatic that I was out on the road again playing music, and uh, that tour was really 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 fun. I remember on this tour that all the bands went to Denny's together for Thanksgiving dinner, and we had a turkey bowl that morning in some big field in the middle of nowhere. And uh, also on this tour, I was big time into YouTube. I think we all were. I guess I kind of took the helm and always had a camera in my hand and was making little shows like the Chris Fafalius show where I would just talk real fast to the other bands or to people at the show and tell them that the Chris Fafalius show was on Thursday nights after Grey's Anatomy for some reason. I'd always mention that. I'm outside the ICC in Boston. We are ready for a great show. I'm here with my boy Pauls. Pauls is in the band Boys Like Girls. They're a great band. You guys are doing a great job. You guys are rocking it out every night. I think you guys are great. It's the first time I saw you a couple nights ago, and I was impressed. You know who's especially impressed? Our guitarist, John Bowden. He came up to me, and he said, those guys are effing awesome, and I agree. I think you guys are doing a great job. We're in Boston. It's your hometown. They call it Beantown. You want to let them know why they call it Beantown? Home of the Beans. Home of the Beans. You heard it here first. Call your friends. Tell them the Crystal Valley Show is on Thursday night right after Grey's Anatomy at 10 o'clock. Let them know. Hopefully, we'll be seeing you all soon. Peace. Making videos all the time on tour was a cool way to pass the time, and I just thought it was really fun. But I didn't know that it was eventually going to pay off, literally. There was this contest that we heard about from our manager, Alex, this website, heavy.com, and they were attempting to be the new YouTube. And they were having this contest where the winner got $25,000. And we thought, hmm... Well, we don't have a record label paying for a next record, so maybe that could be our ticket. And I remember thinking, if we could win $25,000, we could go home and we could record a brand new album, and um, we would have everything we need. We could, you know, we could make repairs on the van we have. We could go on tours that, you know, just not have to worry about money. It was us against, like, I think seven other artists. Six of those other artists didn't even compete, but I think there was one rapper who we were neck and neck with throughout the whole length of this contest. And it was based purely on views. You could upload as many videos as you wanted per day. But over the course of, I don't know if it was a month or a month and a half or what it was, but whoever had the most views at the end won 25 grand. And there was no way we weren't going to win this thing. I was obsessed. We were competing as hard as we could without totally knowing the rules, but we made some Great videos. The heavy.com contest was incredible. 
And we owe so much to our own buddy, Chris Fafalius on that because he made basically every video because he was already doing the YouTube thing at that point. And uh, he, it just took to it like a fish to water and really just helped us win that contest because he knew how to get them to play whenever people would put them on their MySpace page and he would just create all of the content as he still does to this day, all the content that Chris makes, but we owe Chris a huge debt of gratitude for getting us money to record. Just say yes. When the final day of the contest finally came and I saw that we won, I was just holding my breath being like, are they really going to give us $25,000 for making videos? I definitely remember there being uncertainty about getting paid or wondering, you know, what if we win this and then this doesn't even turn out to really be real because it was it was strange. I mean, I've never heard of anything like that uh, to the to this day. Got to give credit to our manager at the time, Alex Brawl, for finding out about the contest and getting us entered into it. Uh, and I can't believe it. We won it. It couldn't have come at a better time. We had just left Fuel by Ramen and we wanted to record a new album, but we didn't have the funding to do it properly. But now we did. With funding now secure, preliminary plans to record a new album could now start. What the guys didn't expect, however, was that a certain punk rock icon would express interest in the band. Steve Sabosley remembers. Now, I had been on Mark Hoppus's podcast, Hi, My Name is Mark podcast, during the promotion of 37 Everywhere. I remember I took the call for his podcast in our van because we were driving from city to city, probably pressed for time. You know, we were doing some like eight-hour drives, you know, from show to show, which is a big part of the day. But I took this interview call from the back seat of our van. I think I might have been under a blanket. That went really well, and he was super nice, and I thought we had good chemistry. We must have stayed in touch because his new band, Plus 44, was coming to Pittsburgh in May, and I was on the guest list. I don't know why I didn't go to this show with Steve to meet Mark Hoppus and talk to him. Our friend Johnny went with him and he, he asked me recently, like, why didn't you go to that show? I, I don't know. I don't remember. The first idea we were kicking around with making a new album was, hey, why don't we record with a bunch of different producers and have an album that is pieced together with songs from different producers, which you know, wouldn't be obvious to the listener, but for us, it would get us working with a bunch of different people. Maybe Mark Hoppus could be one of those people. We knew that Mark was doing some production work at this point. He had produced the Motion City soundtrack album, Commit This to Memory, and it sounded great. And of course, we would have wanted to work with him. Me and my friend Johnny went to the show and afterwards we were going to go backstage and meet Mark Hoppus and talk to him about this idea of him producing some punchline songs. I was still getting used to how famous some of these people were becoming. I mean, I they were Blink-182 was a huge, huge band, but it was only a few years ago that I was seeing them play in clubs, but people at the show were going crazy and 
we made it to backstage through this swarm of of people and felt so cool and then we get to the other side of the fence and the security guard is like all right now stand right there so we made it like one foot into backstage and he's like stand here mark hoppus comes out with two security guards they're all like seven feet tall and we're here talking to Mark Oppis. Had just like, I don't know, a couple minute conversation with him. It was a little bit of an awkward environment, but uh, I thought that, you know, we made a good impression and told him we were going to send him some demos down the road and he could decide if he wanted to be involved with this or not. I remember we were eating burritos at Moe's in Philadelphia and Steve's phone rang and it's from a number he didn't know. And it was Mark Oppis. And that is insane if you think about how much we idolized Blink-182 in high school. When we had this idea of working with multiple producers on the album, two of the first people that came to mind were Jamie Wolford from The Stereo and Let Go and Sean O'Keefe, who we already recorded action with. Those were two people at the top of our list. But I don't think that we thought Mark Hoppus was going to be an option. We had really liked the band The Stereo for a long time. They were on Fueled by Ramen a little bit before we were. We knew that their singer, Jamie Wolford, was a producer, and we liked how his stuff sounded. We thought maybe he could be one of these producers. So we had this plan to go out to Phoenix to definitely record with Jamie Wolford. And in the meantime, I had sent demos to Mark Hoppus. I made a burned CD of MP3s and popped it in the mail. And I thought, I'll check back with him in a week. So we're at practice, we're mid-song, and I look down and my phone is ringing and Mark Hoppus is calling me. And I remember, guys, stop the song. <laughs> Mark Hoppus is calling me. It was basically the coolest possible phone call because he said, hey, I got your demos and I don't want to produce three songs. I want to produce your entire record and I want to be your manager. What? Yeah, I remember that practice when Steve got that call and being all giddy and wanting to see what was being said. You just heard Steve going like, okay, uh-huh, yeah. And we couldn't wait for Steve to report back to us what was being said. That might have been the best band practice that has ever happened. We were elated. And I remember thinking, wow, Mark Hoppus is going to work with us on some songs. And um, everything just seemed to be going right for us. So the next step was going to be figuring out some kind of deal of how that would work for him to be a manager and a producer. Which, looking back, I don't see why that was that complex, but... That was the next step. But we had these plans to go to Arizona. So we're going. We're going to start recording. And I think it was cool that we weren't waiting around for people. We were just taking action on our part. With some recording plans made and some potentially big opportunities on the horizon, Punchline kept their foot on the touring pedal as well. U.S. runs, as well as a first-time trip to an overseas destination, were on the 2007 schedule. Steve Sabosley recalls. We had a headlining tour in April of 2007 with The Graduate, 
the fold and permanent me on the tour. The graduate were really cool. I don't think they stuck around much longer after that tour. And, but people always talk about that album that they had put out. So I th- think it was cool that they were on that tour when their album came out. The Fold were our buddies for sure. Loved those guys. Just really nice, normal fellas. Fun fact about The Fold. Um, anybody who has kids probably has heard the song The Weekend Whip about a million times in your life. It's the theme song for the Ninjago series and all the movies and the video games. But yep, that is The Fold. They play that song. Dan wrote that song and uh, I'm sure that uh, it did good for him. This tour always sticks out in my mind as one of the funnest tours I think we did with Punchline. I think that all the bands on the tour just all got along really, really well. It was in the spring. It was getting warm outside, um, and the shows were really, really good. And I think at this point in time, I had rekindled a little flame with one of my uh, ex-girlfriends. And during the tour, I remember messaging her throughout the tour and her telling me that she couldn't wait for me to come home and Aww. you know just just little things like that that made the tour mu- that much more enjoyable i was majorly in my video phase during this tour as well and i think one of the reasons we hit it off so well with the fold is they also had the same sort of sense of humor as we did and they were down with making the videos with us and i i kind of remember them like saying m- my catchphrase back at me which at the time was Hopefully I'll be seeing you soon and hopefully I'll be seeing you soon. And hey, if you were down with like things we thought were funny, that was an instant bonding point. And I, I always think about that when it comes to Dan and the fold. And permanent me, they were were troubled. They <laughs> there was a lot of drama with them that uh I don't know I don't know why. And uh I don't think they stuck around much longer either, you know? One thing's for sure. We've seen a lot of bands come and go. Another awesome thing that happened during the tour was we got official word that when we got back in May, we were going to go on tour in the United Kingdom with the band Weedus, who had the song Teenage Dirtbag, along with MC Lars and our buddies uh, Army of Freshmen. Through Bowling for Soup, we got this opportunity to go to the UK for the first time to tour. It was the Good To Go Tour with Weedus, MC Lars, and Army of Freshmen. And this was May of 2007 also. We had become friends with this awesome English guy named Ed Sellers, who was on the Bowling for Soup Tour with us. He even did a voice for the Texas Toast cartoon at one point. He narrated uh, the story of Mana Milk. <laughs> which is pretty awesome. Dane Cook quickly rose to the top by stealing Manamilk's routine. While Manamilk stayed in the hospital for the next two years in a deep coma and inexplicably nude. Uh, But he was the promoter of this tour and he brought us over and man, oh man, love that guy. And I love this tour. We didn't know what to expect. We were like, we've never been here before. Uh, We know that Weedus had been there before because they'd been, you know, they'd been well known for a long time. But I think that most importantly, we were just kind of like, you know what, let's let's just go to the United Kingdom and have a lot of fun. Punchline presents 
John Bellin teaches you about the United Kingdom. Uh, we were going to be visiting the United Kingdom, obviously. You know, that meant England, uh, Scotland, and Wales. This has been John Bellin teaches you about the United Kingdom. And we thought to ourselves, you know, if, if we have a bad show here, at least we're going to be in the United Kingdom. It was amazing. And the best part for me was, you know, you're going to the UK. I mean, what are you going to drive when you're over there? Oh, no. We're getting a bus. That's right, Mom. Your baby boy made it. He's on a tour bus. It wasn't like Japan where we showed up and all of the logistics were worked out and you were carted around. This was more planning on our part of how to finance the tour. And we decided to all get a bus together, all the bands on the tour. So it was going to be a very tight-knit scenario. We toured with Army of Freshmen on that really long Bowling for Soup tour, so we were like brothers with them. And now we're in Europe. Hello, my name is Kai Dodson. I play bass in a band called Army of Freshmen. I'm here to talk about a tour that we did with Punchline in the United Kingdom. One of my favorite parts about sharing a bus, and particularly this tour, was at night after the shows, we'd go back on the bus and we'd hang out or the bus would drive to the next city. And we would sit up, the, the tour buses over there are double-decker, so we would go up to the upstairs where there was a lounge and hang out. And I remember sitting and we would trade music. We would talk about songs and bands and try to turn each other on to music that we hadn't heard. Um, and I remember bonding over with uh, Steve, particularly about Jellyfish and our mutual love for the band Jellyfish. Super fun uh, trading songs like that. It, it's really Really great. The Army of Freshmen guys had been to the UK before, once or maybe even a couple of times, and I thought it was so hilarious that I'm telling you, the second we landed in the UK, the second we got to Heathrow, they started saying things like quid and the boot and whatever other UK slang they knew, like as if they always said it. And I always thought it was the funniest thing in the world. I remember the first night we got word that the show was sold out. Uh, man, I can't even remember where it was, but you know, like I said, never been to the United Kingdom before. Very first night, there was like five, six hundred people there and just going crazy. And it was just a great experience. It was cool getting to know Weedus as more than just the band that sings Teenage Dirtbag. I'm just very fond of that band. A lot of unique characters. The singer, Brendan, I think Nick Revac, our old tour manager, put it best when he said that he's like a superhero. He's wearing, look at him, he's wearing a utility vest. At all times, he had all of his stuff on him in this vest. Uh, you need a toothbrush? It's in the vest. Passport? In the vest. Anything you need, it was in the vest. And doing... <laughs> Doing superhero things like they flew an entire sound system to the UK or maybe they had one there that we carted around with us everywhere. But it was they wanted to have all the control of the sound in their power so that they could always have a consistent sound every night, which was very unique. So they would do their own sound and just give the sound people a left and right stereo input. Whereas most bands, they play, they're running through the venue sound system. They used electronic drums. They had some acoustic guitar that was distorted. There were some backup singers in the band. There were a lot of different 
a lot of things that were different from us touring with the usual rock or punk bands, but they were very sweet to us and it was super cool. One of my favorite stories to tell, and I will probably always tell and remember for the rest of my life, happened on this tour when we had a day off in London. Uh, Our tour guide, Ed, had taken us on a tour through London because none of us us had ever been there before. Um, He took us to see um, Big Ben. We, We tried some really, really cool food that we had never tried before. But most importantly, he was going to take us to Abbey Road to see where the infamous Beatles Crossing was for the Abbey Road album. Speaking for myself, the Beatles are my all-time favorite band, and I was just ecstatic. I said, if there's one thing I want to see, you know, I'll probably never get a chance to see it again. I'm in London. I want to see Abbey Road. So we go to see Abbey Road, and I remember we... (laughs) (laughs) it's obviously a tourist attraction Uh, i mean everybody's who who visits there who's not from the place will try to reenact the famous album cover and we embarrassingly enough did that and probably did the worst take on it whatsoever we have a few pictures of it it's it's horrible it did not come out well um but right after we got done doing that our tour guide ed sellers said to us you know Paul McCartney lives like right around the corner. And I was like, what? You know, I just would be excited to see his house, you know? And it turns out that Paul McCartney was in the news uh, around that time because he was going through a divorce with his wife. And so he was actually spending time at the house. And I, this to me was like, we are going, let's find it. So we did some walking in the freezing cold. And finally, Ed said to us, this is the street. I know it's the street. And if you looked way down at the end of the road, you could see these two huge bodyguards that were just standing outside of Paul McCartney's house, you know, in case any, I don't know, I guess paparazzi or anybody was trying to get pictures or just even so much as talk to Paul McCartney. And so we were walking down the street and his house was surrounded by this big stone wall with a big wooden fence that you couldn't even see in. I mean, it was just like... You you just walk by and you could probably just see the peak of his house over the fence. So we're walking down the road and out of nowhere, the gate opens up and this car starts backing out of the gate. And I was like, oh my God, Paul McCartney's pulling out of his driveway, you know? And the, the, the car pulls out and we all look at the car and there's some random person in the car that we'd never seen before. And, you know, it was just a, you know, we were let down like, oh, I guess we're not going to see Paul McCartney. And I, I'm not joking a split second i mean this happened all within a span of probably two whole seconds we're walking by his house and as we're walking by the gate is open and you could look in the gate and you could see paul mccartney's house and up on the porch paul mccartney was standing on his porch waving goodbye and saying to the car all right we'll see you later then you know my my poor paul mccartney impression but For a split second, we walked by, looked in, and saw Paul McCartney waving goodbye to whoever was in the car pulling out of the driveway. And I could remember saying to Nick Rivak, who was with us at the time, like, Oh my God, that's Paul McCartney! That's Paul McCartney! Oh my God, oh my God! And he's just like, be quiet. And meanwhile, these big bodyguards were like looking at us. But, you know, everybody dreams of going to England and and probably meeting or seeing the Beatles. And we actually got to see Paul McCartney standing on his porch. And I can remember thinking to myself, all I wanted to do was go back to our bus because I was completely content. 
and I wanted to call my mom and tell her I saw Paul McCartney standing on his porch. But, you know, back in that day, you didn't have the capability of calling home on a, on a regular cell phone. You had to get like a paid plan. So I had to wait until my trip was over to go home just to tell my mom I saw Paul McCartney standing on his porch at his house in London. There is something that happened on this tour that to this day I say regularly. And um, there was this woman who came onto our bus and she was just so enamored with John Bellin. And I think her husband was actually inside the club, which is, you know, a little sketchy. But so she's just sitting there looking at John like he is just the cat's pajamas. And she keeps saying to him, hello, John. And now I work with John and I say that to him, I would say, I don't know, four times a week. And uh, that's going to stick with me forever. And it's really funny how this, how much this lady loved Joan. Uh, another thing I think about that I, I think is really funny was touring internationally is always an adventure. And usually you end up in a place where there's a distinct language barrier. You know, going to Japan that you, you know, I don't speak Japanese. So there's going to be a, a barrier that we're going to have to try to figure out. In the UK, obviously, it is a another English speaking country. I mean, they, they gave us the language or we brought it over here. But there is a barrier, even though we're speaking the same language. There are a a lot of words, mostly slang, that we just use differently. And getting to know those can be challenging both on stage and off stage. But I remember this was when John Bellin was playing uh, in Punchline. And over in the UK, there's a phrase called, the, a word called bellend, which basically it's slang for like, if you call someone a bellend, it's like calling somebody a dickhead, uh, you know, the, the bellend of their, their genitals. And how do you predict this? But first show there's a group of women who think it's the funniest thing that his last name they think his last name is bell end he clarifies but then they proceed to keep calling him bell end and it's all in good fun but they come to multiple shows and you could just you just know because you'd walk in just hear bell end bell end it was funny I, I still think of him when i hear that word now it's sort of worked in reverse where now it's it it makes me think of, of John rather than uh, the, the cruel slang. The thing that I remember most from this tour is that we played in Yeovil. And behind the place we played, there was a giant carpet hill with a dip in the middle that you can go down in inner tubes that they called Ringos. At the end of the night, a lot of the employees of this place were uh, just hanging out with us. And they were all going down the inner tube hill. And this fella said that he goes down on his feet. And so we said, we want to see you do it. And he goes up to the top of the hill. Now, mind you, this guy is hammered drunk. And he went down the hill pretty fast. To be standing on this inner tube and go down there is crazy to begin with. But this guy's drunk. And of course, he's the crazy drunk guy. And he gets naked, which I hate when people do that. It's like, oh, God. It's like when he did that, I was like, I hope he falls. Now I kind of regret saying that because, of course, he went down. He made it most of the way down. And then he fell. So you can imagine going fast. The brush burn alone would be horrendous. But he also broke his arm. And we're like, oh, man. I don't think I was encouraging this guy to do this, by the way. But it happened. And it was unfortunate to witness. When our tour in the United Kingdom ended, um, I remember we were flying back on the plane to uh, Pittsburgh. 
and we were all excited. We were just coming off of our high horse thinking, you know, now, hey, we're done with England. We're going to go home. We're going to record an album with Mark Hoppus. And, you know, things are only just going to get better from here. Despite a potential artistic and business collaboration with Blink-182's Mark Hoppus on the table, his sparse availability and communication with Punchline over the next few months left the band feeling that they had to forge on with recording plans and then circle back after. So in August of 2007, the guys headed to Tempe, Arizona to record with Jamie Wolford. John Bellin remembers. In July, uh, I remember Steve had a phone call with Mark Hoppus, and he basically said in a nutshell, he was like, yeah, hey, listen, I'd, I'd love to work with you guys. Um, the only problem is I'm very, very busy right now. I can't you know, give you a time frame of when it's going to happen. You know, I, I do want to do it. You know, let's make it happen. But right now, I can't you know, promise when it's going to be. After that phone call ended, we were just kind of like, well, you know, he'll probably just give us a call in a couple weeks and we'll probably iron out the details. Um, but then before you knew it, you know, things weren't happening and things weren't going our way. And, you know, we had all this material and we still had that $25,000. We went from my heavy and um, we were just ready. We were ready to go. I mean, things were always things were going good for us. We were like, we can't wait. You know, if we sit and if we sit around and wait, you know, nothing good is going to come of that. Even though we were still optimistic that working with Mark was a possibility, we were at a point in our lives where we felt like we had to keep our feet on the gas pedal because we had nothing else to do. If we weren't either touring or recording music and releasing new music, once again, we felt like we were going to fall behind. And hey, at worst, we go record this and then we re-record it. But uh, we knew it was going to sound great with Jamie Wolford. So we went out to Tempe, Arizona. We stopped and played some shows on the way outside of Detroit and in St. Louis. And PJ left his cymbals in St. Louis. We arrived to recording. <gasps> Where's my cymbals? Leaving an entire case of cymbals somewhere to somebody in the financial position that I was in, I would never financially recover from that. That would never happen. And I was so unbelievably bummed out that I did that. You you could have, you should have just told me the world was ending. I lost my symbols, the world is ending equal. Same thing. Hi, my name is Jamie Wolford and I'm the producer of Just Say Yes, the 2008 album by Punchline. I remember Punchline coming out to Arizona and playing I think you guys played the Modified, which is sort of like a small punk art gallery place in downtown Phoenix. And the show was terrific and typical of modified shows. It was sort of like hot and terrible and, you know, whatever. It sounded, sounded like garbage because of the loud, you know, sort of art gallery environment that it was. But I loved the band. I loved the show. And, you know, I had befriended the band at that time. And I don't know if it was said to me or suggested to me then that we should work together. But if sometime after that, you know, the band was in touch with me and we decided to make a record and we were going to do it out in Arizona. August in Phoenix is one of the hottest times and places on planet earth, but we were amped to be recording with Jamie in his very air conditioned house, which we did not leave so much. I was informed that this record has now been beaten many times over, but at the time we were there, 
they were currently on a streak of the most days hitting 110 degrees in a row ever. Probably typical of Phoenix, Arizona in the summertime. It was like 1,004 degrees. Uh, and the place that I lived and worked at, my sort of my home studio, I'm sure was about as insulated as, you know, any shed. So it was it was hot, and on that side of the house that we spent most of the time in the control room, it was, I mean, just cooked all day long. So we were, you know, we everybody was in like t-shirts and shorts, and you know, drinking water, trying to stay cool as we as we made this record. Once you get over like 110 or 108 or whatever, it's like, oh, it's hot on the sun today. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Jamie really cared as a producer. He was all about maintaining the upbeat spirit of making rock music, and we learned a lot from him. He was very dedicated. He spent so much time getting the right tones for things, and I just loved going from recording 37 Everywhere with Shep and Kenny to this was like night and day. And you know, at the time, I thought that these songs were so different from 37 Everywhere. But now when I look back, to me, we had, by this album, we had perfected a lot of things that we were aiming for, but maybe didn't hit with 37 Everywhere. Like there were a bunch of different kinds of songs. Like there was a piano song, there was an aggressive punk song, but this all felt a lot more cohesive. That's the word I'm looking for. When we did pre-production with Jamie, uh, first of all, it was really cool because we got to do it in Robin Wilson's studio. Uh, He was nice enough to let us just work out all of our pre-production there. And since I didn't have my cymbals, uh, their drummer let me use his cymbals that were there. So I got to use the Jim Blossom cymbals for pre-production, which is kind of funny. But it was like a breath of fresh air. All of a sudden, Jamie had opinions on what I was playing. It was not anything like 37 Everywhere, where it was just like kind of like show up and whatever you did, you did and cool, you know, we'll get it down. But Jamie had ideas. He had opinions. He was definitely not afraid to tell me when he didn't think what I was playing was good. But then he would show me something to play that he's like, I know what you're going for there. Try this. And Jamie is a sick, sick drummer. People might not know that he's good at basically everything musical and um, he spoke drum and that was just so unbelievably relieving to be back in that world again where you could relate to the producer and he would give you ideas that actually made sense for you to play, not just like, oh no, you got to go bloom, blah, bloom, bloom, or whatever they would tell me. And I go, I don't, I, I, I don't know what that means. My initial impression of punchline was that the band was, sort of the prototypical pop punk band from the East Coast. And while I loved that stuff, I was so excited to receive the demos for Just Say Yes because I felt like the song craftsmanship was at a much higher level than the previous stuff that I'd heard. So I was super eager to get my hands on the band and the material to kind of get down to work. And I remember one of the first things that we did was we went over to the Jim Blossoms uh, recording studio just across kind of across the way from where I lived. And I, I think, I don't know if we were there for a day or a couple of days. I can't remember, but I drilled you guys into pre-production and we really like went through all the songs and all the parts and, and a lot of the physicality of how to do things 
in a way that I don't know if you guys were used to, but you know, I, I put you through your paces. When we were doing pre-production, Jamie pointed out one of the most obvious yet every band I'm in, I see people not doing this. Whenever you're learning a part or you're going to practice a part or going to run through something together. I remember he always would say, hold, hold, wait, 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 let's start together. And then we'd count it off and go in. And it's amazing. If you're in a band, start together, count off, play together. So many times you're working on songs or playing songs and people are just arbitrarily starting parts at different parts and not playing together. Jamie taught us, wait, let's count to four and we'll all start at the same time. Ready? (laughs) And it's amazing. If you're in a band right now, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, that nobody will just start the part together. Jamie's enthusiasm was definitely infectious. And when you're in good spirits and you're working with somebody who really cares, you just hear that in the recording. You hear that in the music because it translates into the performances on the album. It occurs to me that if you're doing something for posterity so the the forever recording it should be filled with the best feeling that you could possibly have doing it and there's a lot of people that record and you know congratulations you finally made it to the end of that part and there's and sometimes you can hear that in the recording of like this is this is take 100 and I finally didn't get it wrong. And I always think to myself, that is such a poor representation of music. Like this is the one time I got it not wrong. And then I stopped trying after that. So while that's kind of fun for people to like think about in a certain way, I also think it's like way better, even if there's mistakes, if it sounds like whatever the person is doing sounds and feels like it was fun or powerful or emotional. So I'm always trying to push the bands to like, not only get the parts right, but do it in a way that even if, even if like they're at risk of getting it wrong, they're having a good time doing it. I want it to feel, or I should say, I want it to sound like it feels good. Prior to meeting Jamie, I was very, very, very familiar with all of his work. Uh, I was a big fan of the band The Stereo, and I believe at the time his um, his band Let Go had just released an album uh, not too um, far before that, and I loved everything he did, so I was very, very, very excited to work with him. We worked out harmonies, we worked out guitar parts, we worked out drum parts, we worked out bass parts. I mean, everything that we did with Jamie, it just all clicked, and it was such a cool, relaxing vibe. One of the funny little moments that just stays forever in my memory about this recording session was Jamie with a pot of coffee in hand singing the Folgers theme song. The best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. Yeah, that used to be my sort of my sound check song, like like on stage, you know, when you'd have to do a line check in front of an audience. I got I would I would always take that moment to sort of get the audience like a little bit going a little bit. And and a lot of times people would join me. But it's better than, you know, check one, two, one, two, you know, sibilance, sibilance, you know. After we got done with our pre-production, it was time to start tracking the album. And, um, you know, I think when you're in a band, you almost always expect to go and record at this big multi-million dollar recording studio, which looks like it's made of all pine and just has, you know, nice carpeting and, you know, all these big 
cool electronics and controls, but Jamie Wolford recorded um, all of his bands out of his own house in a small room, and I remember having to sit down on a uh, a van, I, I think a minivan seat that he had just sitting in his living room. But it didn't matter because I remember hearing everything that Jamie's recorded before, and it sounded like a million dollars. So when we were about to start tracking drums... This may have been Jamie's idea. Maybe it was all of our idea. But we got word that they found PJ symbols and we were getting them shipped down. But we decided not to tell PJ and to wait until right before he was about to do his first drum take. I think you guys probably filmed it and you would have been stupid not to. But he's like, hey, PJ. He's like, what? Found your symbols, dude. He's like, what? He's like, yeah, we got him back. And he's like, don't fuck around with me, man, <laughs> or something like that, right? And then he's like, no, we, we have your symbols. We got them. Oh, hey, they found your symbols. Yeah, they did. Shut up. Yeah, they did. Did they really? Yeah. Where? At the club. Were you lying to me? When? Yesterday when you said you didn't find them? No. They found them now? Yep. Please don't be lying to me. I'm not. We decided to tell you right before you sat down. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> <laughs> and then he lets out this like amazing like you know f yeah or something right and then we started rec- recording the record it was such a relief uh, a release of tension in pj knowing that like all of that stuff is like going to be back in his possession and he was <laughs> not out like a thousand some dollars on symbols it was such an awesome way to start a record i don't know if i've ever had a moment where like we had this like you know this big like happy birthday congratulations graduation <laughs> type feeling moment right before we like clicked off song one that was really great ghosty was the first song and always had that first song energy i remember while we were on tour i would always play the opening part of ghosty on on guitar like while we were on stage sound checking so there was a little nugget there to develop writing process i remember thinking oh man i love love this song it's like real fast pace and high energy and like really really just yeah you know it's a good opening song and i can remember thinking i think that would be a great track to open our album with in typical punchline fashion we wanted a high energy album opener i think every punchline album starts with a high energy opener we don't ease into it ever we always come out and try to smack you in the face This song is wild all over the place and just a lot of fun. One of the things I used to do back then, which was probably something, I don't think I would do it. It's a little antagonistic, but it, if given the right circumstance, like the right, like if I felt like close enough to the band where I could be a little antagonistic towards, in this case would be PJ was if I felt, you know, and drummers do this a lot, like drummers will 
they'll go to the chorus and they'll do the crash ride where they'll kind of smash the crash as they're playing through the chorus, right? Well, my big thing was always like, drummers would do that, but then for some reason they would just look at the cymbal they were playing and then their left hand, their snare drum hand would always sort of like dribble the backbeat and it wouldn't be powerful, but their cymbal was always super loud because they were just like looking at it, right? And I used to do this thing where I'd stand next to the drummer in in pre-production right by that damn cymbal. And every time they would do that and look over at the cymbal, I would just hold the cymbal and stop it from ringing until they looked back at the snare drum and then lifted their left hand back up higher and started getting the snare drum power back. And I remember doing that. I feel like I remember doing that a lot to PJ. He would like big drum fill out of the verse and then go into the chorus and be like, yeah, and like smashing the cymbal. And then I would just reach out and grab it. And, and all of a sudden, the whole drum kit would feel awkward and be like, ah, and he would have to like recover. And then, and then eventually he started getting like, uh, like, don't look at the cymbal, look at the snare, look, the, the biggest sound you want, look at that instrument as you're playing it and then ignore the other thing and you'll get your drum balance back into thing. But I remember doing that a lot. I wonder, I, I, I'd be curious to know if he remembers some of the weird, grueling, antagonistic things I probably did to get him to play in what I would call the right way for the studio. Experimented. I think this was the first real tempo change at the end of the song. The last chorus, the tempo drops by, I think, about 10 BPMs. Ghosty was always a great song to play because of, you know, the energy, the speed. It was just a really fun song to, you know, bash around on. And one of my favorite parts is, I, I don't think this is in the actual album recording of it, but at the end of the song, you can hear Jamie Wolford screaming from the control room, yes, you are good at what you do. Because we just really nailed a take, like nailed it. And he was really excited about it. And it's so awesome when your producer is that excited about the music that you are making because you know it's going to turn out great when someone's just as excited as you are. Ghosty became our opening song for a lot of years. So thanks, Ghosty. Whenever you're working with a band, you're trying to filter their identity through your identity and your taste and your talents as a producer. And my tastes and my talent at the time, when I listened back to that record, I obviously was a big fan of super roomy snare drums, uh, you know, uh, which I think actually lent a lot of like power to the songs. The hit coming together just felt like magic. I feel like from the time we started working on it till we ended it was like half an hour. And we were like, damn, there it is. That's a hit. So it became the hit. And this felt a little more rock. And I liked the rock edge. It just it just felt more like me, personally. The one kind of pre-chorus or whatever that I had in the song started off by going, When you're a fool, nobody loves you. And that was always catchy to me. And I don't think we ever did anything with it. And one day we were at punchline practice in Chris's basement. And... 
I was messing around with that. I was just, you know, fiddling around with it. And one of them, one of the guys said, what is that? What is that? I said, oh, you know, it was just something that one of my older bands had never used. And Steve and everybody were like, you know, keep playing that. Keep playing that. And we just kept on messing around with it. And Steve came up with the um, with the verse idea. And then I think we all came up with the chorus um, idea together. When you're a fool, nobody loves you. You walk around with your head in the clouds. I think I've had enough. It won't be easy for me to fall in love again. So how can you tell me that this isn't love when my heart is a fire? The band coming in to that record was sort of a pop punk band but then they brought these really great highly melodic and sort of memorable songs that i actually felt felt a little bit more almost indie rock in some ways and i think the the um the marriage of that type of thinking with the material that you brought in made that record special and unique we were flying through writing this song and there's the part where it stops and Steve says, my heart is on fire. And I remember us debating, like going back and forth, what that line is going to be, because that line has to be awesome. And I mean, I think it's good. I think it's awesome. I think we, I think we got the right line there. Punisher Privilege showcased a more, I guess you could call it a Beatles-y side with some of the uh, seven chords and whatnot. My take on it was kind of like, it almost sounded like a 1950s oldie type with like a modern day pop rock twist to it. I'm on my knees begging here for some kind of chance, so come on and make it better. We had demoed this song even before we recorded 37 Everywhere, and I really love this song, but I don't think we were ready yet to go this far in this direction when we were recording 37 Everywhere, but now we were ready to go this far, and I'm glad we did. But also, there's an alternate version of this song that we call Punisher PJ, where PJ sings the second verse, and it's amazing. Everybody who knows me knows that I can't carry a tune in a bucket even if it had a lid on it. I cannot sing. I suck. And Steve was working on uh, Punisher Privilege song. (laughs) I think we were just bored one day at the studio. And he said, hey, will you go in there and sing the second verse with your shirt off? And um, so I went in and did it. And um, just so you know, every time I recorded that song, both times, no shirt. Well, that really 
boring. I don't know why I remember this, but I remember playing the PJ version of this song for my mom, like to have a laugh. And I remember her like dead serious saying, he sounds really good. Uh, when we were at the studio, we just wrote, I, th- I think, the second part of the song um, where I have like a little line that plays kind of like a defensive ex-boyfriend that the girl's trying to stray herself away from. And uh, yeah, great jam. I love it. Since this album came out, I think there's been several times that Steve and I have either texted each other or said to each other, I can smell a rat coming from miles away, which I think is a ridiculous lyric. Uh, But then the lyrics, and I remember all working on these together in the studio are, I'll treat you better than the jokes in the bar with their coke in their cars. You're just too sweet for a scene that beat girl. You're so much better. I think that's sweet and it's pretty like 50s-ish, but... The I can smell a rat coming from miles away line always makes me laugh. Track four on Just Say Yes is Maybe I'm Wrong, which to date is one of my favorite punchline songs and probably my favorite song that we've, like of the songs that we've played the least that shows probably my favorite. Why don't we play this song? Maybe I'm Wrong is a sort of vibey, melancholy, emotional song that I felt like was a really special song and maybe the direction I saw our band going in more. I love that song. It's just got a nice chill vibe. Maybe I'm wrong is so chill to play. It's just I I feel like if it were possible, I'd put my feet up while I was doing it. Another memorable part of the song is working out the harmonies uh, in the studio with Jamie, which I believe we have footage on that made um, one of our videos on YouTube. Uh, And it was just cool to sit around and harmonize and try to figure out those harmonies in the song. And they're just really, really pretty harmonies. As somebody who can't sing himself, being in a room with... John, Jamie, Chris, and Steve while they're just working out these harmonies and just kind of singing them a cappella or just, you know, one person playing guitar. It was so cool to sit there and watch them do that. Who the hell are you doing? 
know, one of the things that's kind of exciting about when you're a producer, you you when you're in a band, right? You're sort of you see other bands play, but that's such a small window into what it's like to be those musicians, right? And it's just observation, right? But when you're a record producer, you can kind of like be in each band that you work with and you figure out a way to like adopt the things that they're doing in a way that you can kind of like, it's, it's like a grab bag of tricks that you take on to the next thing. Somewhere in the Dark was our first piano-based song. The chords were super simple, and I think I just enjoyed playing keyboard on my demos at, at home. But this song first came about, like I had this song idea swimming around in my head, I think even when I was in high school. Every member of our band was and still is a giant Ben Folds fan, so to have a song that felt pretty Ben Foldsy was awesome. It's funny I love the song Somewhere in the Dark. However, uh, every time I listen to that song, I always think of one thing and I can't ever not think of it. And it's such a stupid thing. Um, It's just a petty little musician thing. I had originally recorded the piano parts on the song. And I believe what had happened was, is after the song was recorded and after we had went home, uh, Jamie had either uh, lost the plug-in for the piano sound or the file got corrupted or something um whatever the case i remember the piano track got lost and we were like oh no what do we do we just you know we're already home in pennsylvania you're in arizona how do we do this and this was before technology really was advanced where we could just record it at home and send it to him um so he said well hey you know i i know a piano player that could come over and play these parts so he got one of his friends to come over and play the piano to an exact T of what I originally had played it. So the piano that you hear on that song actually is a guy who replaced me on the piano because the original file got lost. And it turned out great. I mean, it was it's awesome, and you would never be able to tell if you weren't me. <laughs> but uh, as a musician, that's one of those things that when I listen back to it, I'm like, man, I wish that was me on the piano. One of my favorite punchline bass lines. The bass line on Somewhere in the Dark is a song in itself, and Steve did a great job of writing it, so I really tried to knock it out of the park on the tracking of it. I might like it better without you, baby. Well, it does that the moment's passing. Most punchline lyrics are ramblings on a certain topic, but for the song How Did This Happen, I remember we wanted to try to have some kind of story. 
to it. So each verse was a scenario about a person who found themselves in this interesting spot in life where they're singing to themselves or asking themselves, how did this happen? Then turned out nothing like she had ever expected When she reflects, she thinks about her Barbies and dresses 29 to time on the edge of her bed Laughing to herself about the big tats on her forehead She's innocent, but she was close to the edge One more step, and she probably would have been dead It's ironic how she got here, but she's glad to be alive She says to herself, how does this how does this happen has this shuffle beat, this triplet shuffle beat that I showed PJ how to play. And it was something I was trying to get on somebody's record at some point. And I ended up getting it on two punchline records in different de- degrees of, you know, severity. Uh, but I remember showing it to PJ and him, him like kind of tilting his head like a dog that didn't understand. And I was so excited to get him to do this. And he does do it. He does a great job. And right in the middle of of the second verse of How Does This Happen, there's this beat that is like this really strange beat for uh, where your limbs are doing this sort of like independent thing. And he was, I I don't know if he likes doing it or liked doing it or not, but it it turned out great. On how does this happen? We originally wanted to have some horns where that uh, really cool guitar line is. In hindsight, I think the guitar line's probably cooler than the horns, but I don't know. So either way, Steve was contacting local Tempe ska bands, and I remember somebody called him, and her name was Ska Queen. And he said, excuse me? And she said, Ska Queen. Uh, that got repeated for a long time. The last verse is about a composer or songwriter who eventually loses his hearing. Play music and turn it up loud after so many years. Hearing loss is bound to happen. He's learned to sign, but he wants to cry without the music in his head. He says he couldn't survive. He writes out to stand, I will never be heard. Not even by him. Isn't that a shame? He knows it's Something I'm really proud about with this song is the way that the music helps tell the story of the lyrics because the third verse is about a guy with hearing loss. So for the first half of it, the music comes way down to reflect that. But then when the lyric happens about the music in his head, the song gets big again and there are these like Beach Boys style harmonies behind it. And I just think it's so cool. And I think that's why this ended up being the first song that we released from the album because it shows so many different sides of our band. And we just wanted to say to the world, hey, this is what we're all about now. The song Developing You, Camera, had a nice somber rock feel to it. 
I don't know why the song is called Developing You, comma, Camera. Like, is Camera the, a person's name? I, <laughs> this one, me and Chris laugh about this one looking back. We simply would not give up on trying to make this song work. We tried so many different ways of playing this song, and we just felt like we couldn't get it right, but we just didn't want to give up. We were just going to, we were going to keep going until this was a song. But it's a really great song, and I think it was honestly one of the ideas that we were most excited about going into this recording. Some songs, when you're writing them, they just naturally all pour out. This was not one of those songs. This song was written and rewritten, but I think it's a cool song. I'm happy with how it came out, but it was a labor of love. I think this song really shines once you hit the bridge. I remember all working on the bridge together with Jamie to make it like this really epic part. Developing You Camera, I feel like has really become sort of a forgotten punchline song in the grand scheme of things. But when I listen to it now, I'm like, this is really, really good. And I think some aspects of it are almost a throwback to back in our Rewind EP days when we were really trying to be, even without knowing we were trying to be, we were kind of progressive in a way, I guess you could say. And uh, I think that musically... This song has some of those aspects, especially once you hit that bridge. My White Collared Shirt is another one that did not just write itself, but took a lot of work. And still, I gotta say, looking back, I feel like the part that went, all of my friends should get with all of your friends, should have been the chorus. All of my friends should get with all of your friends, and we should have a 
We might have to write a sequel to this song because I don't know how we didn't realize that the all of my friends should get with all of your friends part of this song should have been the chorus. It should have been the main part of the song and not just a part of the song. You know, we wrote it with the intent of kind of just, you know, having like a little sing-along chorus as simple as all of my friends should get with all of your friends. And that melody is very catchy. And um, it reminds me of something that Weezer would have done. It's funny because I definitely was just trying to play whatever I thought Pat Wilson from Weezer would play on that song. By the time we finished recording the eight songs with Jamie, we knew that we were going to have a great album and going and doing a few more songs with Sean O'Keefe was just going to be the icing on the cake. To me, it's a lot more emotional and sort of hearts, you know, tugging on the heartstrings than, than the stuff I had heard beforehand. So... I don't know. You know, I I could say I'd want to do it differently, but I'm glad we did it the way that we did it. I think it turned out terrifically. If anything, we probably could have like whittled back on. We really went for you know on both like both punchline records that I did. I I listened to them and I go, man, we never said no to any idea, did we? We like tried them all. Like, can it can it sneak in the mix? Like, why not? Let's fit it in there somewhere. So I probably today I'd I'd probably try to enforce a little bit more restraint on like how many overdubs and parts, you know, that sort of thing. But but yeah, the spirit of the record was, I guess, just say yes. There's your fucking quote. I'm out. With the majority of the album in the bag, Punchline's next stop was Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. This legendary studio was opened in 1983 by Butch Vig and Steve Marker, and it would be the place where bands such as Nirvana, The Smashing Pumpkins, Death Cab for Cutie, Soul Asylum, Jimmy Eat World, and Tegan and Sarah would record iconic and unforgettable music. Punchline was excited to add their name to the long and storied clientele of this establishment, and even more excited to once again step into the studio with producer Sean O'Keefe, who had helped the band develop their sound during the recording of Action in 2003. Chris Fafalius remembers. In the few short years since we had last recorded with Sean O'Keefe, I know we really felt like we came a long way as songwriters and as players, and even listening back now, I felt like we had really learned how to craft a song a lot better now. So it was exciting to step into the studio with Sean with a little more experience on our end. Now we're going back with a different guitar player and different sounding songs that were a little moodier. You could even say experimental for us. And it was just like a wonderful reunion and such a good time out there in Madison, Wisconsin at Smart Studios of all places. When we got there, I remember looking at the building, and it's a weird-shaped building that's on the corner of two streets, and it's just this very odd-shaped building. And I can remember hearing so much about this place, and when I got out of the van, I remember thinking, that's the place where we're going right there? But then you walk in this building, and it's just like this beautiful studio with multiple floors. There's a different studio on each floor. I think the bottom floor... Uh, that was the main recording studio and they had like a baby grand piano in, inside one of the rooms and then the top studio was awesome and it had this big lounge with a kitchen and it was awesome man. We were we were pretty excited to start working. Smart Studios had the most amazing collection of gear that we have ever had access to. Uh, aside from a couple of symbols that I was gonna bash on, uh 
I don't think I played a piece of drum equipment that was like under 50 years old. It was so cool, but it was temperamental and you know, you had to play them a little bit different. Sean was very uh, adamant about me getting that right, which, you know, made all the difference in the world. And uh, it was just an absolutely fantastic place to record. I mean, you could see the mic that Kurt Cobain recorded vocals on. It was right there. That's awesome. I remember we were watching the Nirvana Nevermind documentary, and there were scenes in it that took place in the room where we were watching the documentary. Another cool thing that happened while we were at the studio was, I believe the drummer for Ben Folds 5 was actually in one of the studios recording something for his solo band and chris got word of this and was just like oh my god i I love ben folds five uh this the drummer is downstairs recording an album i guess we got to talk about my embarrassing interaction with darren jesse chris was so excited to talk to him the studios had a common area a, a lounge if you will and i remember chris gearing up to to talk to him and just like coming from the sweetest place of just being a fan and chris tried to talk to this guy and it went so bad every time that the drummer for ben folds five would go into the kitchen chris would find something little like a little piece of paper or something and uh just go throw it away in the kitchen because he was in there and like try so hard to like start a conversation or like get him to acknowledge that we were there too but i mean the dude was probably just into his work. I mean, I'm sure there's nothing more than that. I remember my conversation with him being the equivalent of like an old Chris Farley interview, where it was basically like, I think I was talking about the DVD, their complete sessions at West 54th Ben Folds 5 DVD. And basically, I was just saying like that I had it and it was awesome. And afterwards, Chris sat down and was just like completely like, man. That couldn't have gone any worse. And we, were, we were all laughing about it because it wasn't a big deal, but it was just kind of like you go to meet somebody who you kind of like, you know, look up to a little bit and it just ends up being this conversation that is not worth anything talking about. Um, so that was a very funny memory that I have of getting there. I don't think that he was really like that big of a jerk or anything. I just think it was pretty clear that he had no interest in talking to me or talking about Ben Folds 5. I seriously think that's the last time I ever went up to someone I admired and talked to them about how I enjoyed their work. I think from then on, I just didn't want to meet anybody who I liked. I just wanted them to remain mythical in my mind. I also always think about with that lounge, we got Thai food and it was very, very hot for all of us. <laughs> so we were just all falling over the couches and uh, dying from Thai heat. When we were writing songs for the album, uh, uh, Steve came to practice one time with a song that he had written um, electronically just with a bunch of keyboards on his Pro Tools rig at home. And listening to it, I thought, wow, this is really cool. This is something totally different that I thought would be really awesome to put on the album. It was one of those songs that was different, but still yet sounded like the band, in my opinion. We made a demo called How Was I Supposed to Know that we brought to Sean to record. The title was later changed to Just Say Yes, which became the album title.
We had recorded a version of this song with Vince Ratty from Zoloft the Rock and Roll Destroyer. And the Ben Gibbard influence on this song was pretty clear to me. So it was only fitting that we were going to record it where Ben Gibbard had recorded before. It was hard for me to really hear how this sounded up against other punchline music, but I could tell that it was really different. And now when I look back, I, I think it's such a cool, such a cool song. In deciding what songs to do with Jamie versus what songs we were going to do with Sean, we wanted to save the more experimental, different types of songs for Sean and do the more like rock-based songs with Jamie. Because I think at this point we knew that Sean preferred to do things that were a little outside the box and a little bit different. He had done a lot of pop punk music in the past and we knew this was something he was more interested in. And we saw what he could do on a song like A Beautiful Green from the Action Album and we just wanted to take a step further in that direction with him. Yes was kind of going to be this album's beautiful green, or so I thought, because I was approaching it in the same way that I had approached playing that song with Sean. Whereas, like, basically, what I did was just kind of play things and then we would just kind of create loops out of them. And it's cool because on this song, it's not just me playing drums because we were just adding stuff in and Sean would go in and play some stuff too and he'd go, oh, I have an idea and he'd go in and run it, play it. And so if you, whenever you hear like the multiple drums on top of each other, like that could be me and Sean together at some parts, which is really cool. And I'm really glad the way that he took this song, which was a purely pretty much electronic song, but he made it feel a little bit more organic. Uh, a lot of the... Uh, additional percussion and stuff that we used they just had this big basket of things that made noise at smart studio and we were just picking up random things in there and making the noise with them and like that all got put in there and that was really cool and the drum set that i was playing on there was like from the 50s which is so cool i i everyone can appreciate that i mean it's it's old it stood the test of time it still exists and it still sounds great that's awesome. Uh, recording that song in the studio with Sean O'Keefe especially was great because Sean had access to all these really, really old school uh, instruments. Uh, he had like a, an old Mellotron. He had an old, uh, it was like the very first drum beat machine that, that had ever existed. So we got to use a lot of these tools that Sean had. And in my opinion, the song turned out really, really awesome. We put a bunch of harmonies in it. And this is one of those songs that I think that we kind of recorded with the intent of just going all out with not following any rules. Just add anything we wanted to the song. And um, it ended up being the title track of the album.
sticking with the format of having a few songs on the album that we were just going to have no rules to just do anything we wanted to, The Other Piano Man was one of those songs that Punchline had had demoed from before I entered the band. And when we were listening back through some of the demos, I actually said, well, I think this song would be really cool to just work on. Um, I could have a lot of piano ideas that we could put in there. Um, I don't think the song was called The Other Piano Man at the time, but uh, when we worked on it with Sean, uh, I went down on the piano that they had in the studio down on the first floor, and we tracked some ideas that how can we make this song just the weirdest, weirdest song possible. When Bellin joined the band, we knew we wanted to take advantage of the fact that he was such a good piano player. And what better time than now in this beautiful studio with this amazing baby grand piano. And uh, I'll tell you, recently, I ran into my piano teacher from when I was a kid. And I didn't stick with the piano. I wish I would have. But, you know, I took lessons for a few years when I was a kid. But she's also Bellin's piano teacher. And she was telling me, oh, my God, Jonathan, he was amazing at piano from the first time I saw him. He was just naturally good at piano. And I was like, yeah, I know. We we made an album with them, and I think that Sean also realized how amazing Bellin was at piano and was impressed. had the song The Other Piano Man, which was also about a musician who was getting older and realizing he chose the wrong path or was in the worst place because he didn't make it. So I think these were some of uh, some of my fears starting to come about. It was written because Greg Wood went to a leadership seminar because that is something that Greg Wood would do. And he met a fella there who just kind of told him the story about how he always wanted to learn how to play the piano. And Steve being Steve wrote this song basically based off this idea of this guy who uh, never learned how to play the piano. Eventually, this character in this song slips into a dream, and we use this as an excuse to just go crazy in the studio. scissors on it in the bridge you can hear some snip snip snips this is a definition of a kitchen sink moment in a song and if there was a kitchen sink there that we could have played we would have played it we just kind of wrote the song in an eerie fashion and completed it at the studio um, on the piano and i think it's probably one of the coolest songs on the album Get off my train. I remember having the melody. (laughs) 
From the demo that Steve made of this song, I pictured it being very upbeat and dancey. The song was basically born out of that melody, and we used some super cool guitar pedals on it. I envisioned it as being this kind of real pop rock, poppy song that we were going to come out and thinking it was going to be, you know, probably one of the standout hits on the album. And instead, we used a bunch of these old fashioned guitar tones and, and keyboards and weird sounds. And the song just kind of took a di- different direction for me. Um, I still think the song is great. And I admire what Sean did to the song because it's very unique when you listen to it. But in my opinion, it kind of didn't really come to be what I thought it was going to be and to this day even when I listen back to it I I hear other things that I wish we would have put in there and different approaches to the song and um, I don't know I don't know how I feel about that the chorus lyrics you're gonna get the nano I think what is that what movie is that from Pootie Tang that was something that our friends said that's how it made it into the song uh, well Bob I'm a pawn Tony Got my dillies on a pepitane. Well, I can't say the name no, my brother. What a tie. So as we're all fans of the movie Pootie Tang, the word Nano was worked into everyone's, you know, vernacular. And so you would always say like, yeah, I, I give that one the Nano or something like that. And so Steve put it in this song. And I remember whenever people would ask about that and I would say it was from Pootie Tang, Steve would get so mad that I would say it was from Pootie Tang for whatever reason. I think it's awesome that it's from Pootie Tang. But I think the song title itself, Steve, probably, if I had to guess, probably got from the movie Ghost, um, where Patrick Swayze's on the subway, and that one guy comes on, and he just, get off my train! Get off my train! No. Get off! We played that live for a while. I don't know. I feel like we didn't really fully figure that song out. While we were out in Wisconsin, we had played a show uh, in between recording just to kind of go out and make money. And we played at this skate park. And I'd never been a fan of playing skate parks. And I think everyone in the band will agree that it was just kind of this thing to do to break up the recording sessions, to have something fun to do. And I think the show just ended up not being fun for us because we were all just ready to go back and start recording. And one night we played this show and it was probably, you know, by the time we got back to the studio, it was like midnight and we were all just kind of like having a good time. I think we had a few drinks and I went down to the piano downstairs on the first floor. And when I got, when I went down to the piano, I started thinking to myself um, about the song Castaway that Steve had wanted to record acoustically. And I was just dancing around on the piano with how I feel the chords would have went if this would have just been in a piano song. (laughs) 
And when we were doing that, I think Sean came over the you know monitor and he's like, "What are you? What are you playing? What is that?" And I said, "Actually, I'm just playing notes that Steve plays on the acoustic guitar uh, for Castaway." And he said, "I really think we have something there." So Castaway kind of emerged from a late night session. I think Castaway is a real example of studio magic, where you're all together in this place, inspired and surrounded by amazing sounding instruments, especially the piano in this case. For Castaway, we use this grand piano in the live room. Absolutely one of my favorite punchline songs to date in terms of the song itself and the recording. Until you find me So originally, it was going to be an acoustic song that was just going to be on the album. But after we put piano to it, we eventually got the idea to put like other things on top of it, like the Mellotron that Sean had in the studio. And using the drum machine that Sean had in the studio that was known as the first drum machine known to man. Uh, and we got to use all those cool things and put it on the song. And I will say, I think that song, to me, is the best song on the album. I couldn't believe how great this song turned out. I loved it then. I still love it now. It still has the ability to give me chills once in a while. It definitely did back then, especially the first time we listened back to it. After we got done recording and we were driving home, Sean had done us a favor and specially gave us a little rough edit of that song so we could drive home and listen to it. And when we were in the van, it was real late at night, and we were listening to that song. And I think we all got a little bit uh, teary-eyed thinking, man, that song came out really, really, really good. And it just turned into this little masterpiece for Punchline, I think. And it was all because we had a few drinks after a show one night, and we were just itching to record music. And we made a piano song, and it was just an unexpected thing that happened. drive home from Wisconsin, I remember listening to these songs and the songs we did with Jamie, maybe talking about the order of the album and just really feeling like we made the best punchline album. 
And uh, I really think up to that point, it was. And I felt very optimistic that every decision we had made up to that point was the right one. And this was going to be the album that changed everything for us. With a new album in hand, the question as to what comes next loomed hard over the band. The past decade had been a whirlwind and any amount of slowing down instantly felt like failure. Steve Zabosley remembers. We had been doing this now for 10 years since the very beginning. And there were a lot of ideas swimming around. And I think that there was an element of like working out of frustration to like make this work. Like gotta keep working, gotta make this work. All this time we're waiting for Mark Hoppus to figure out this deal that we're going to have with him. And that was becoming very frustrating that it seemed like that was slipping through the cracks because it just came on so strong. I want to produce your whole record and I want to manage you. Like, So I remember that we, we had, were recording these songs with these guys thinking, look, we can't, we can't wait around for him and we have this stuff planned. At the end of the day, if we go and record these songs and they don't come out, like they'll never go to waste. So let's go and record. But at some point, we had waited around too long. I guess we could have waited it out and kept trying to contact Mark. But at some point, I think we just came to a collective decision that he's flaking on us. He's a busy guy. He's in a huge band and we're going to have to do it ourselves. We were extremely inspired. I remember when we drove home after the Phoenix recording, which, you know, oh, we're done recording. Okay, we have to drive back to Pittsburgh. This was probably our 10th time doing a 30 to 40 hour drive across the country. But for me and Chris, I remember me and Chris up front listening to the songs that we recorded with Jamie, like Maybe I'm Wrong, especially. And me and Chris had, I think it's just because we were awake, but we like had the night shift and we were driving and I feel like we were both crying (laughs) through the desert. Like, you know what? This is beautiful music we made. And like, this has to work. Like, how could these songs not land with people? We were just so proud, so excited, so exhausted, experiencing all of the emotions. It wasn't the end of the world. I think that's when we decided we were going to release this album on our own under a label called Modern Short Stories that we came up with ourselves. We had this fan named Jim Legrando, who I remember Chris telling me, hey, there's this guy, Jim, who used to come to our shows, and now he works for this record label and distributor in North Carolina called Red Eye. This was a possible solution brewing for what are we to do? Now we have all these songs recorded, but Mark Hoppus isn't hitting us back. So let's take some action. Jim helped uh, wrangle a some kind of deal with this distributor for us to just become our own label. They would get the records in stores and to the... Uh, to iTunes and the digital places at the time. 
Hi, I'm Jim Legrando, the narrator for a band called Punchline. And at the time, I was a project manager at Red Eye Distribution, uh, an independent music distributor based out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, I had known Steve and Punchline from being a fan for years, and from going to Penn State, I had met somebody from Penn State that was friends with these guys and helped me connect the dots to see what their next step was going to be. I had heard that they weren't going to release their next record with Fueled by Ramen, and I thought there would be an opportunity there for them to work with us at Red Eye, because what we did a lot of is work with independent artists that were starting to look into their own label situation, but having the ability and the audience to be able to put something else out independently and still be successful with it. So working with Steve and the rest of the guys, what we did was put together a plan for getting it out into stores and up on digital places like uh, Apple and eMusic and and all those sorts of things. And through the power of the sales force and the folks that were in Red Eye, it would get into independent record stores like Dave's Music Mine in Pittsburgh or all the way up into places like Best Buy and, and Walmart or wherever you would find CDs in 2008. I think we were still a little ahead of the curve on knowing this is the way that music is going. And obviously it would go more and more that way as the years went by. We were still playing a bunch and being pretty resourceful with trying to get a bunch of college shows that paid pretty well. So we went into this record with a pretty decent sized budget. We really hoped that we could have the same scope of this album release as we did for Fuel by Ramen, which with this distributor, we were able to get our CDs in stores at the time. And I remember we still had our CDs in Best Buy, but maybe it wasn't as full scale. I was pretty into this whole DIY record label approach. I think everybody else kind of saw it as just an extension of the band, but I was thinking about, you know, other bands and, you know, signing friends bands and whatnot. Got really into it. Hey, let's call the label Modern Short Stories because just found out that a teacher from my high school who taught a class Modern Short Stories had passed away. And I think we had all at the time had been big fans of the movie Big Fish. And we kind of uh, wanted the album cover uh, to kind of represent something that you would see in that movie, kind of have a Big Fish um, vibe to it. Our friend Jason Link, who we stayed with in Chicago while we recorded Action, he was an amazing graphic designer, did classic album covers for... Bayside and Hawthorne Heights and Taking Back Sunday, he did the album art, which is a guy holding flowers. Most people thought that guy was in the band, but he wasn't. He was just some hot model. It's wild that we put some guy on the cover of our album that we still have never met. There was definitely a trend of things being very brown and vintage and worn looking and we tapped into this for the for the style of this. So it feels like kind of like dried flowers and a lot of brown. There was a bonus EP with this album called Just Say Maybe that had another four songs on it. One of the songs that we included on this little EP was a punk version of Castaway.
I think more songs than before were coming to life in this period because we all lived in the same town and it was that kind of scenario where, hey, we can work and just keep working and working and it's not like we only have two weeks to do it and then so-and-so goes back to where they come from. So it was a great time of uh, ripping into a lot of new things. It was definitely a really prolific time for Punchline and we have folders upon folders of demos and b-sides from this era we played this one really memorable show on new year's eve with the gin blossoms our old manager fred worked with them and he had told me that he was friends with robin the singer from working with them and one time when the gin blossoms were coming to town robin wilson left me a voicemail asking me if i wanted to meet up and go get dinner which was Yes, absolutely. So we did. I know we talked about it in a previous episode because he had already taken us out on his boat at this point, but we were playing together in Pittsburgh on New Year's Eve out in the street in Station Square, and it was very cold, but so, so fun. And the stage was heated. And we got to play and end the year going into the next year playing on New Year's Eve in Station Square in Pittsburgh in front of literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people and man it was just i remember thinking that it was just the greatest way to a end the year and b to start the year and i thought to myself man if this is the way this year is going to end and this is the way that 2008 is going to start we've got some good things coming up the new year's eve show at station square was one of my favorite shows i ever played in my life Uh, i know that it was us opening for the gin blossoms, but we definitely had the hometown crowd. You know, they people knew who we were and they were singing along and it was a absolute wonderful, wonderful evening. Um spending uh the entire night playing music, uh hanging out with the gin blossom guys and just bringing in the new year with some, with all my buddies and just thousands of fellow Pittsburghers just celebrating. It was Absolutely surreal, uh, especially when Robin came up and sang with us. In advance of the show, Robin asked if he could sing a punchline song. And I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. And he said, I want to sing Don't Try This at Home. And I said, cool, we'll go over it before the show. And he said, no, I just know it. We can just do it. And I think that I used that to (laughs) leverage me singing a song with them which was Till I Hear It From You, which is just my favorite Gin Blossom songs and one of my favorite songs of the 90s, to be honest. I'm 
Life was always going by so fast back then, and we rarely stopped to smell the flowers ever. But when it turned midnight and I kissed Bellin on the lips, as was our yearly tradition, I know we had to be feeling a crazy sense of optimism about 2008. We had a new album recorded. We were playing in front of thousands of people in our hometown with the Jim Blossoms. That was a pretty magical moment, and I'm glad there are at least a few low-res YouTubes out there, just as a little reminder of that cool night. The year was now 2008. Barack Obama would be elected president, the Summer Olympics would be held in Beijing, Apple would launch its App Store, and Breaking Bad would premiere on AMC. September 16th of that year would also mark the release of Just Say Yes. However, Punchline didn't sit idly by until then. Steve Sabosley recalls. That January, we did a tour that was an acoustic tour where just me and John Ballin went opening up for Anthony Ranieri from Bayside. And also the guys from Bombers were, were there. It was just an acoustic tour, and it was really, really fun. And it was one of those moments where you could sit down with an acoustic guitar, and it's not crazy, and it's not loud. And you could kind of tell a story about all the songs that you're playing. And we played a couple songs that we were going to be releasing, and people responded well. So it was just a really, really cool little thing that we did in January after all the holidays were over that uh, was a really cool thing to do to promote the album coming out in a few months. We went back to the UK with MXPX and did a similar thing where we shared a bus. Also on this tour and sharing the bus with us was the band The Get-Go, which was sort of a super group of guys from Chicago bands, most of which we already knew. Touring with The Get-Go in the UK was really cool because we had known uh, a lot of those guys from being in previous bands. Kyle and Scotty were in Alistair. Uh, Nick was in Mast. Chris was in Show Off. And then they had this fellow who we just met who was great. Uh, His name was Nate. Nate the Great. Oh, we were so excited to go on tour with MXPX. They were one of our earliest influences. Their sound had uh, an impact on us, helping to shape our sound in the early days. And Mike Carrera, so cool. So excited to get to to know that guy. I remember I saw <laughs> we shared a bus, and I saw where he chose his bunk, and I took the bunk next to him. So every night I could go, and I did go. Good night, Mike Herrera. There's this video of us at Stonehenge together where we're all we're all giggly and pretending like we just saw like ran into MXPX at Stonehenge. And uh I don't know why, but I think that's really funny. Our friend Ed Sellers was the promoter of this tour again. And at one point I rode with him in his car and actually stayed at his parents' house, I believe and had a traditional English breakfast with him. And along the way in Scotland, I got to get out of the car and run up and try to interview some sheep in my <laughs> my, my Chris Fafalius YouTube personality at that time, which was just very loud and said, hey, hey. Chris Vivalius here. I'm in Scotland, and I'm with some sheep. You sheep are doing a great job. Hopefully, I'll be seeing you soon, and hopefully, I'll be seeing you soon. You sheep are running because you're scary now, but I think you do it. Hey, sheep. The sheep were definitely not feeling me. This was a smaller tour than the weedest tour that we did the previous year. We thought that, I mean, I guess we just assumed that this would be a bigger tour, and it was a 
quite a, a risk on our parts, or there was just a, a the break even was pretty high, so there was a lot of pressure on. And some of the shows were a little smaller, and it was a little stressful. And to me, that was just kind of a little bit of a bummer. I think that we kind of were a little bit let down by that, not only because of the shows, but then we started thinking, well, you know, we were just here with um, with Weed just a couple months ago, and it kind of sucked to know that like the shows didn't do a little bit better because we had already been there. I don't know what was going on with me, but I was sad. We were making fans, and it was a good tour. And I mean, we're on tour with in the UK with one of our favorite bands. And we played, I don't know, it's a fairly small area. We played, you know, about 15 shows or so. It was crazy. I remember that the London show was really good. I think I was partially sad because it felt like in our band that we were just on autopilot or that we weren't really putting our heads together and trying to get to the next level. Kind of felt like we were maybe coasting a little bit. And I was just sad and kind of scared about like what the future was going to be. The MXPX tour was a different time for our band for sure. Chris was in a relationship and he was spending a lot of the free time that we had talking on the phone and things like that and maintaining that relationship. Steve was just kind of off on his own, just going back to the bus, going to bed not really hanging out a whole lot. I mean, he was definitely hanging out. We had good times, but every single night, what would happen is is we'd play these clubs and then they would just turn into a regular dance club after the show was over. So there was like a group of us. It would be like me, John Bellin, Tom from MXPX, Nick from Get-Go, Kyle from Get-Go. And we'd all just go back in the bus, change, and just walk right back into the club, have some drinks, laugh, cut it up, you know, and uh, then go back on the bus, fall asleep, wake up in the next city. It was absolutely a, it was a great time. And I feel like at the time... I was trying to make the most out of the trip since the shows were not bad, but not as big as I thought they were going to be. We did have uh, a good time, though. Um, The guys and MXPX were the nicest guys in the world, and we got a really cool friendship out of that. And um, also, I got to see a little bit more things that I didn't get to see the first time. I think we stopped and we saw Stonehenge. And, um, you know, we just got to go a lot of places and regardless, you know, like I said a while back ago, you know, (laughs) it's better to have a okay tour in the United Kingdom than to have an okay tour in the United States. I remember thinking at a certain point, like I'm in the UK, I'm on a tour bus and I have, I'm surrounded by buddies. I'm going to have a good time on this regardless of these shows. I really don't. Like I was bummed about them, but at the same time, I was going to make the most of it. And I can remember because one of the biggest things in being in a band that's trying to, you know, get further ahead is that you never, ever stop to enjoy the journey ever. And I remember getting off stage in London and thinking to myself, dude, you just played in London with MXPX. That is awesome awesome and i was really happy about that and that kind of set me up for the rest of the tour that it was going to be okay just going to be different than what you thought it was going to be but let's make the most of this let's 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 have some fun 
you know, we may as well. There was this one morning where we woke up in Southampton on the beach. And I remember coming off the bus and it was just this beautiful day. And I think it was a Saturday or maybe it was a day off. So it just felt like that. And everybody was in such a great mood. And we just had a wonderful morning. I remember we took a bunch of iconic pictures. Later, I would get the picture of Chris framed and give it to him for his birthday. At this point also though, Steve was kind of getting on me a little bit about my uh, going out after we were playing and you know, me and John and Tom and Nick and Kyle and like how we were going out and partying all the time. But I mean, we really weren't partying because honestly I didn't have the money to party. I would go get a couple of drinks at the club and then come back onto the bus. And I felt like he was kind of like thinking I wasn't taking it seriously because I was enjoying it. But the funny part was, is I did so much work on that tour for setting up and tearing down the stage every night and loading the trailer and helping out with the, you know, just the MXPX crew and everything that at the end of the tour, and this is so cool about MXPX, they paid me as one of their crew members for the tour. It was insane. Total surprise. Didn't know it was going to happen. Mike and their tour manager called me down to the lounge in the bus and uh, me and Nick Revac who was tour managing us at the time, and they slid us over money. They paid us for being part of their crew. They didn't have to do that at all. And it was one of the most genuinely sincere, nice things that a band that we were on tour with had ever done for me. Because we weren't making a lot of money, and so that meant the world to me to get a couple extra hundred bucks. Throughout the spring and the summer of 2008, we played a whole bunch of shows, went on a couple tours, and then finally in the fall of 2008 was the time. We were going to release our album, Just Say Yes. So we had this new album that ended up only having two producers. One did eight songs, the other did four songs. So together it was a 12-song album. In the liner notes it said, Just Say Yes, There Isn't Much Time. Holds up. We absolutely could not wait for people to hear this album. And uh, we knew now it was 100% on us to make people hear it. We couldn't rely on anyone else, a record label, anything like that. It was on us. We played a bunch of in-stores around when the album came out, which is when you do these stripped-down performances in record stores to get people to come to the record store to buy your music and spend money in the store. These in-stores, I feel like by the point when we were doing these in the late, you know, this is 2008, um, I feel like we were kind of past the point of doing this. I feel like this might have been an effective trick earlier on, but to me, doing these always seemed like a waste of time. When the album came out, we played a show, a release show in Pittsburgh at Diesel, Club Diesel in the South Side. This was kind of our new spot. It was in the fall and around Halloween when this album came out. And I remember doing some in-stores in costume, especially this one in Altoona at a Hot Topic in the mall 
where Chris was dressed like Jesus and Bellin was dressed like a cowboy. And PJ was dressed like some obscure, I think, a basketball coach from a TV show that I think only he had heard of. Little word of advice when planning Halloween costumes, nobody watched The White Shadow. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves at this point. We were feeling a lot of stress, and there was always one cure for that. That was to play a hometown Pittsburgh show. And our Just Say Yes release show at Diesel was exactly what we needed. And it was sold out. It was awesome. Um, I can remember it was one of the greatest nights. It was such a cool feeling to finally have an album out. It was so cool to think of all the things that were going to come out of the album. You know, if all these things happened leading up to the album being released, you know, our trips to the UK, our New Year's Eve performance, all of our tours with and going out with Anthony from Bayside, we could only imagine the opportunities that were going to come after releasing this album. We didn't have a national tour around the release of Just Say Yes, which was a little bit different from the previous two albums, I would say. It's like we had dialed back the touring a little bit but we did a a short tour with the years gone by in november of 2008 and then we played some shows with this chicago band the frantic in december of 2008 we also made a music video for the song the hit with director tom glunt making the music video for this song i think this is probably our best music video Ever, but it looked like an 80s TV sitcom where John Bellin was the dad, I was the son, PJ was the mom, and Chris was the mechanic who lived with us inexplicably. The hit was going to be our quote-unquote single of the album, and uh, we followed it up with a music video as well that we filmed at uh, a location in Pittsburgh. The director of the video, I believe, was Tom Glunt. And he had contacted the people that own this one house in the shady side neighborhood of um, Pittsburgh and asked them if we could use the exterior of their house to um, to film the video, which they were very, very, very nice and said, you know, they said yes. And then we filmed the second part of the video uh, at a studio, I believe, in Braddock, Pennsylvania, that was actually the layout for the inside of the house, what it would look like. And the video... Um, was filmed in the aspect of a 90s sitcom and what it would look like. I think we got our inspiration from like Full House or like Family Matters, which are all obviously really well-known sitcoms from the 90s. And the end result, uh, I think it was, I still show people that video to this day. I think it came out really, really awesome. And it was just really fun to make. This video was a pretty big production, and we even did some acting in it, like (laughs) as if it was a sitcom. And I think it was... Steve's surprise party we were throwing for him during the video, but uh, oh man, this video is really, really good. Punchline is filmed before a live studio audience. I don't know if I can quit the band, Tracy. I mean, I love those guys. They're like my family. Hello, they are your family. You're in a band with your dad, your sister, and your mechanic. And why does he live with you again? But like, I mean... But what? I mean, come on. They never remember your birthday. All right. I'll do it. Just wait in the car, okay? This could get messy. (laughs) Hello? Why are the lights off? Surprise! (laughs) I thought you guys forgot my birthday. Oh, now how can I forget my favorite son's birthday? Dad. 
I'm your only son. <laughs> hey, little buddy, what do you say we shred a little bit? Ah, oh, I love my family. Just say yes. Ah, oh, get in there. Come on, guys. Let's play. For doing this release pretty much DIY, I felt like we were doing everything right. The album sounded great. We picked a single that was really catchy, and then we made a music video for it that looked great and was really funny. I felt like this album was really a step up for us. I think some people saw it. I don't know. feels like every album, people, some people saw it different. But I think what the thing with this album was it just didn't get to reach the same audience that we had had reached with the two previous albums because we weren't touring nationally and we didn't have the label push. Although, you know, what we put into the album was a lot and we had a publicist and there was a, you know, the albums were in stores all over the place. It was still very much a full-time effort though and we were doing everything we could to get the uh get the word out i felt like almost like we were spinning our wheels at this point and weren't getting anywhere actually in some places going backwards and it was really really starting to wear on me um just emotionally feeling like man i i i don't feel as confident in my decisions to make this my entire life anymore I think at this point, you know, it, it's it's weird because we had worked so hard to put out this album and we had worked so hard prior to it leading up to the release of the album that by the time the album was released, I don't know, personally, I almost thought that, you know, we should take like a little break. But, you know, I understandably that that's not how it works. It was just one thing after another, one thing after another. And quite honestly, I kind of feel like it was starting to take its toll on me. I find myself in situations where, you know, my friends um, would say, hey, uh, do you want to go camping? Or a couple of my friends would be like, hey, we're going to go out and have a few drinks tonight. Or, hey, do you want to come over and just hang out? And I started telling them I couldn't because, A, I was either too tired or, B, I wasn't um, I wasn't home or I wasn't going to be home. And there was actually times where I would miss holidays. I remember there was a Thanksgiving that I was away from my family and there was a, a you know, there was an Easter I was away from my family. And it was just starting to get to the point where like, should I be having these memories with my family or should I still really be going out on the road and doing what I really love? You know, traveling and putting your all into the band can wear on you after a while and you could start to get sick of the people you're constantly with. I'm sure that would happen to anybody, but stopping was never an option for me. Still not an option for me. But it was definitely not an option for me having just released a new album. After feeling all these thoughts, I then came to the conclusion. It was like, you know what? I'm acting foolish. We just really worked hard this past year to try and release this album. And if I had any negative thoughts about anything, I was just being a jerk. So I decided that, you know, I was just going to suck it up. And, you know, maybe I was just going through a, a dry spell. You know, it was approaching the new year again and the weather was cold and I was probably just having a little bit of the winter blues. Um, so I just thought to myself, you know what? Christmas is going to come and we're going to have a nice little break and we're going to relax a little bit. And by the time 2009 comes around, I'll be good to go. Ironically enough, in 2009, uh, we played a little strand of shows after Christmas and I was feeling a little bit better. 
However, I noticed that the past couple shows, PJ was kind of acting a little bit out of character. He was just seem seemingly to be a little bit more of in a bad mood, maybe grumpy and just kind of not, I, I just didn't know what was going on. And, um, you know, I thought it was strange and I thought to myself, you know, you know, we just came off a of Christmas break and, you know, it's the new year, you know, we should be up and at him now. We shouldn't have any, you know, we shouldn't be burned out anymore. We should be playing, you know, to promote this album that we just released. I also noticed that the tensions between PJ and the rest of the band were starting to get a little bit um, worse too. Uh, I, you know, there was a little bit more arguing. We weren't ever a band that really fought, but there were a little bit more arguments than normal. Um, and I didn't know what was going on. And you know, everyone was just kind of acting weird with each other. And I was thinking, you know, maybe it's just not me. So one day after one of our shows, I couldn't take it anymore. I wanted to know what was going on, and I pulled PJ aside and I said, "Yo, man," I said you know, is, is everything okay? What, what's going on with you? And I think that's when he told me that he was having serious thoughts of leaving the band. Having known PJ longer than anyone else in the band, we had a little bit of a heart to heart. And I said, I'll be honest with you, man, you know, the end of 2008 was starting to get to me a little bit. I was feeling burnout and I had those thoughts myself. And it's, you know, not to make light of the situation, but, you know, it's kind of relieving to hear that somebody else was kind of feeling like that too, because, you know, Though I had decided that I was going to stick with it, um, I still started to question myself. Well, maybe my thoughts were a little bit more accurate as well. Um, and PJ was just like, you know, this isn't something that I just, you know, thought of. You know, this is something that I've kind of been thinking of for a while now. I kind of want to, you know, get on with my life. And he just kind of was pouring his heart out to me. In the meanwhile, <laughs> I was keeping the secret from Steve and Chris um, by being a good friend. And, but then I started feeling guilty about it myself. I was like, well, you know, I told him and he told me, and it was just kind of our little secret between each other. But I really thought that we were just going to be, you know, we were just venting and things were going to be okay. As it turns out though, uh, things weren't okay. And PJ finally quit the band and I saw it coming. So I wasn't I wasn't really too surprised by it, but I think Steve and Chris were maybe caught a little bit more off guard by it. You know, looking back, there are probably lots of signs that PJ was unhappy, but I honestly didn't think that he was ever going to quit. I thought he was going to get through it. But then you look back, I even think about in specific, I think about when we were getting photos taken. I think when it was when we were out in Madison recording and PJ just looks really unhappy in all the pictures and, uh, it's pretty evident. And that was before the album was even done. That was like a year before this. But then it was January 20th of 2009. I was at my house and there was a knock on the door and it was PJ. And he came in and he said he was leaving the band. Me and him were butting heads a lot and it was really frustrating. I, I, I don't know. With like the, Our friendship had kind of become second to the things with the band. And... I don't know. It was it was really hard at the time. I hated that we had lost our friendship. Leaving Punchline was the... I still think about it daily, almost, I would say. From the time I was 16 till then, it was my entire life. You know, Chris and Steve were my family. I saw them more than my 
actual family. I remember being in high school and getting dropped off at PJ's house for the first time ever. I was 15. I had my guitar in my hand and I was wearing a backwards Phoenix Suns hat inexplicably and walking up to his house just thinking like, man, I hope that this this goes well and not even realizing like what what the journey was that we were about to step foot on it's really crazy all the things that we did and it all started right there with uh walking up to his house things just got messed up you know they i don't know it's like we at a certain point we became too close to be friends anymore it felt like you know like that we were just people who were with each other because we have this mutual thing that we do almost like you know like parents staying together for kids or something maybe i don't know me and steve just couldn't couldn't get on the same page with anything it felt like anything that we could argue about we would argue about and we didn't argue though we never argued we didn't fight we didn't like we got mad at each other but we would just be real passive aggressive to each other in the van and make everyone else feel real awkward about it. Our friendship had definitely taken a backseat. And I mean, our friendship didn't come back for a while. And now so happy to say that, you know, PJ is one of my best friends of all time. We are brothers to the bone. I remember we played at the Crazy Donkey in Long Island. It was one of Bayside's album release shows. And it was sold out and it was awesome. We played great. And I remember thinking that night, like, this is it. This this was my last show. This is a perfect last show. And I'm going to go out with this one. And I, I decided that when it was over because I was okay with it at that point. Like, I was okay with that being my last show. And I, I remember when I first told Chris because Chris was the first person I told that I was leaving the band I drove over to his house and, and told him in person and I remember like sitting on the couch and, 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 and just flat out saying it to him and it was awful I, I, I still to this day don't like thinking about it very much because punch time was the greatest thing I really did to that point and it's just really upsetting to talk about really to think that you take this thing and we took it all over the world man we did it and i just set it down and walked away from it my life's fine now it's it's good yeah i have a great life i always say my cup's filled i'm a very happy person at this point finally and i think that the music they put out now and the every their live performance everything it's just on a completely different level than I don't know. I, I, I'm just proud of them. I think that they do amazing things. And yeah, sometimes it hurts that I'm not a part of it. You know, it's like seeing your ex-wife or somebody with being really happy with their new husband. And I, you know, there's no ill feelings towards anybody who's ever come into the band, out of the band, whether it be Jeff, Pat, Corey, anybody. I think that those, those guys are my friends. They're my good friends it's hard to put into words what it feels like to take your whole life and just set it down and walk away from it. And I, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever be over it. I probably won't be. I know I won't be, but I look at it differently now. I, I'm very, very happy that I was a part of it. I'm proud of it. I'm really proud of what we created. Yeah. I'm just really, 
really, really thankful that it all happened. And doing this podcast has been awesome to talk about it and remember a lot of the things that I did and a lot of the things we shared and a lot of jokes. Um, I laugh so hard doing these podcasts. Um, we have such a good time doing it. And, you know, I'm an extremely fortunate person that I existed in the world at the same time as everyone who I got to do punchline with. And that's not lost on me at all. With the exit of a founding member of the band, the rest of the band was left with decisions that needed to be made quickly, especially since it was only a few months since the release of Just Say Yes. Who would fill PJ's shoes behind the kit, and what was the next step for the band's DIY frontier? Chris Fafalius remembers. You know, I wasn't mad at PJ for quitting, but just as always, my first thoughts were, okay, what do we do? What's the next step? How do we right the ship? And who's going to be our drummer? He wanted to figure out a, a career and a job and have some stability and have some money because we were still living off of not very much. We decided not to let it, let it get us down. And we took it as an opportunity to get somebody in the band who was really excited again, uh, just as I was when I joined the band. It was also a little relieving to be able to move forward and find somebody who was on the same page. Jeff Kapanik was a mutual friend of ours who was also a drummer, um, and he was the drummer for my old band Logic in the mid-90s. And um, when PJ quit, we were all really, really good friends. And when PJ quit, uh, we'd taken the opportunity to ask Jeff if he would be interested in filling in, a.k.a. possibly joining. Jeff was also originally from Belvernon. We went to college together. He was my roommate for one year. He's a pharmacist. He's tall and very thin and wears thick black frame glasses, and he hits the kit so hard. He was such a good drummer, and uh, yeah, we were excited to ask him. Hi, I'm Jeff Kopanik. I played drums for Punchline for a few shows after PJ left the band in 2009. PJ is a beast on drums for sure, and one of my favorites to watch. Like any musician, he has his own drumming style, so it isn't easy to play all of his parts. Jeff is an extremely good drummer, probably one of the best drummers that I know, and when we thought of getting him in the band, um, we thought, A, this would be awesome, but B, um, Jeff also is married and has a family, and we didn't know how this was going to play out. At this time, I was evolving from a person who made band stuff my number one life priority and I was now leaning on my backup career path as a pharmacist. I was less than one year into my marriage. My wife and I bought a house. We had a golden retriever. It was good. Then I heard PJ quit the band and you guys contacted me to play a couple shows and I guess I was like, uh, yeah, I'll play some shows. But we took the chance and we invited him to play a couple shows with us and see how it went. And we ended up playing with him a bunch of like, this is during the time we played a bunch of college shows. We actually recorded a new song called Heart of Gold.
Heart of Gold felt like it was a little bit of a tryout for me. Uh, listening back today, I realized I pretty much took zero chances on those parts. I really played it simple and safe. Um, I think I was just nervous to be in that situation with you guys for the first time and didn't want to screw it up. Jeff actually stayed with us for a while, and I remember thinking that this was going to pan out really well. But then actually out of nowhere, I think that Jeff had just gotten past the fact that he didn't want to be a career musician. A big part of me wanted to be in Punchline. I know at this time we were talking about going away to record some demos. Um, I forget who it was with, but we were, were we maybe going to go out to Arizona to um, record some stuff? And I was thinking this is going to be my chance to be part of a project where you get to spend time in the studio, really work out parts, you get to do pre-production, you would have a producer like analyzing your parts, helping you craft it into some amazing work of art. And I had never had a chance to do that previously. All of us had admired Jeff as a musician for a long time, but I think we all knew that it wasn't gonna be able to happen. He had a career and it just wasn't feasible, but the job was his if he wanted it at that point. I just remember Chris being so into every practice and every sort of jam session, like giving it his all. And of course that type of behavior is contagious. So um, that's why those guys still play music today because they are good at it and enjoy every minute of it. I was ready to move past playing music and I didn't want to hold you guys back. I had so much respect for you guys. And in the end, I knew I was just a fill in and um, it was going to be time for you guys to go on. It was shortly after Jeff left in the spring of 2009 that my old friend Josh Blasco hit me up and he was going to the Tom Savini School in Manesson, Pennsylvania and asked if Punchline would be interested in making a music video at the school. We grew up in this town, Val Vernon, and, and the town next door, this little town, you'd never know, but there was this special effects school that was one of the best special effects schools in the country. And we made a music video there with Vince Grassi. We decided to make a video for the song Ghosty because that song just seemed to lend itself to the horror movie vibe more than any of the other songs on the album. The one problem we had was now we didn't have a drummer and we needed a drummer obviously to look like a band in a music video. So we didn't know what we were going to do when we came up with the plot of the video, which was basically like these scientists making a concoction of some sort of liquid to drink for whatever reason that the rest of the video was going to be that the scientists pass out and had this trippy dream of, all these weird things happening. So it was pretty easy for us to make the ghosty video kind of not make sense. So we figured, well, if we're not going to make it make sense, we could easily pull off not having a drummer by just having a big gorilla sit behind the drum set and pretend to play the drums. And I don't know how it came to this, but the guy who played the gorilla in the ghosty video was none other than our next drummer, Pat D. Hey, my name is Pat D. I played drums for Punchline from 2009 until 2010. The gorilla costume was incredibly hot. I created my own ecosystem in there. 
I remember taking off the heavy mask in between takes and my hair was like as if I jumped in a pool. Also, when learning that I was going to be in the video, did my part to make sure I knew how to at least look like I knew how to play the song. But uh, quickly into takes, it was very apparent that any sort of drumming skill would not be required. I believe there are scenes where I'm just standing up, slamming maracas as hard as can be. A ton of people worked on that video and put a lot of time and effort into it. At one point in the video, I'm in an all-white sweatsuit and my whole body is painted orange and I had a banana affixed to my head. At one point in the video, I ripped my own skin off of my face. And I want to mention that my dog, Andre, who passed away on April 27th of 2023, he made his music video debut in this. He was just a puppy and he was really cute and he did a great acting job. He, When you watch the video, watch Andre as like a little dog actor. He's pretty awesome. Usually with music videos, you would film for one day, maybe two days. And I feel like for this, we did many, many days, like shot so much stuff. Uh, I think that... It's a fun video. He let us really be involved with some of the some of the ideas, and I appreciated that. I think it's a fun video. It has so many views on YouTube. I'll always be grateful to Vince and Josh and everybody at the Tom Savini School who made that video happen. That was really, really cool. We kind of wanted to keep moving, so we got our friend Pat D, who was a good bit younger than us, to play drums for for us for some shows and he came into the first practice and i remember that he had he'd done a really nice job learning a bunch of the songs and it felt natural and to me i think i was seeing like other bands just kind of like in this situation you get somebody you play with them until you find the right person but you know you don't need to not having a permanent band member hinder going out and continuing to play and developing things. When it came to learning all the songs, I had to get all of the CDs in CD format, physical copy, tangible thing. And I would put those into my laptop and I put all of my drums in my mother's basement. And on my break from my job, I would go home and work backwards through Punchline's discography. I really liked Pat. I thought he was really funny and he was really putting the effort in. And it was nice to have some youthful enthusiasm injected into the band. We were all right around that 30 years old mark at this point. So having a younger guy kind of lit a little spark under us. I was a huge Punchline fan growing up and working with Steve in my prior band was incredibly exciting and getting to know him was even better. Really opened up the communication lines for what would later become uh, my opportunity to join the band. His first show with us was in May of 2009 at the Icy Light Amphitheater. It was a benefit for some police officers that were killed. Uh, Wiz Khalifa played. It was amazing. I was nervous as hell before literally shaking but as soon as we started and i believe we opened up with ghosty for that show um it was 
like riding a bicycle off to the races. Super fun, incredible time. That was a huge show for Pat's first show to be with us. There were thousands of people there. There are some really cool photos from that show out there. But uh, yeah, Pat proved his worth and uh, we decided to keep playing together. Not long after my first show, which uh, was hilariously massively attended, uh, we were heading out for a very short tour with the band Socratic from New Jersey, who turned out to be lovely gentlemen. Um, And this is the tour, I think, that kind of made me start to um, doubt my future in Punchline. Um, It was fun. We had a really good time. However, I got sick in the middle of the tour and I had some sort of bug and I don't know what it was. And I just remember I was in the middle of nowhere on tour and I just didn't feel good. And all I really wanted to be is just home. And then other things were going on, like I said, with my band Gene the Werewolf, where we were starting, we had just got done recording a uh, an EP for the band and we were getting ready to release it. And all the other guys in my band would be like, well, what's going to go on? Are you going to be home? We want to we do this and we want to do that. And I think everything was just starting to take its toll on me and I was kind of getting burned out. And I just didn't really, I, I, on that tour, I just really wanted to be home. Um, it was fun and we had a good time, but I just kind of started losing interest and then start. I started to revisit my thought of not wanting to be in the band any longer. I turned 22 on that tour and was very much still acting like a 22-year-old. I think one of the final straws on that tour for me was I was really sick one day and we were playing or we had a day off in the hometown of the other band Socratic and one of the guys in the Socratic asked us if we wanted to go to their house for a barbecue because it was a day off and it was just going to be this fun day and I was really really sick and I couldn't go and I had to stay in the hotel room and I stayed in our hotel room all day while the guys went out and to the barbecue and I remember at one point I I woke up from like a nap and I'm starving and I didn't have any means of transportation and I looked out the window and I saw that there was a gas station like a quarter of a mile down the road so I went to the gas station and I'm like struggling to like you know stay coherent i'm just not feeling good at all and it's hot outside and i go to the gas station i walk in and all i wanted was like a big water and maybe just like a pack of crackers or something and i got my water and my crackers and i went up to the gas station attendant and i forgot my wallet back at the hotel which was a quarter of a mile down the road and i basically (laughs) felt like I, I went to the gas station attendant, explained to him my situation in hopes that he would just give me the stuff, I guess. And I never felt so pathetic in my life. And I walked back to the hotel and just stayed hungry and didn't eat for the rest of the night. And I thought to myself, this is not fun. I don't like this. I'm miserable. I just want to go home. When the tour came to an end, we played a show at um, a place called the Chalaroy Italian Club, which is very well known for being a tour stop for regional acts on the road or national acts on the road as well. Um, and we played, and by this point the tour was over, but I had already started feeling better. And I would, you know, I kind of felt bad for being for lack of better terms, a stick in the mud on the tour. And the last show at the Solaroy VFW was really, really, really good. And then two days after the last show of our tour, I woke up one morning and I had the flu. (laughs) I don't know who gets the flu in the middle of the summer, but I managed to do it. 
in the next couple months afterwards, I think we just managed to play a couple shows here and there. It wasn't anything too crazy. And at this point, like I said, I wasn't, I didn't care too much about that. I was kind of burnt out and I didn't know what I was going to do. After the Socratic tour, we kind of played shows here and there until we got offered the Absolute Punk Your Next Favorite Band Tour with Farewell, Between the Trees, and Action Item, which would be happening in September of 2009. The tour started off, and when it started off, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm just going to have a positive attitude. Maybe the fact that I was sick on the last tour kind of ruined it for me, but I'm going to go into this tour with a positive attitude, and you know, maybe I'll just feel rejuvenated after this, and maybe it'll make me want to do more, and I just was really hopeful of that. The tour itself was really, really awesome. Uh, We got to play in some cool places that I hadn't been in a long time. Uh, We actually played a show at the House of Blues in Disney World. And I think Chris's aunt somehow worked for Disney or was affiliated with Disney World in some way. And she got us free passes to go and ride in the Magic Kingdom for a day, uh, the day we showed up there. And it was awesome. I mean, we went on all these rides. And then that night, to make things even better, we had a show at the House of Blues in Orlando. And it was the hometown of the band we were on tour with, Between the Trees. And the show was awesome. It was hundreds and maybe even a thousand plus people there at the house of blues in disney world and i thought to myself you know this is what it's all about this is this is awesome there were a lot of other things that happened during that tour that i thought were really fun um we we were really into the band ween on that tour and i can remember religiously listening to the mollusk uh on repeat in the van we got to really know pat d pretty well and he was awesome and we got to make some good friends with the other bands and um, you know, it was just a really fun tour. The, the weather was nice. We got to visit some places with nice weather uh, all year round. And uh, it was just, it was, it was really fun. It was a very nice, uh, fun tour. If you're part of a good tour and you're out on the road, chances are you're going to get offered another good tour. And that's exactly what happened. And I remember one morning um, I was at the gym. And as I was at the gym, I got a call on the phone from Steve. And Steve said, Hey, man. Uh, we just got an offer to go on tour with Hawthorne Heights. And I don't know what came over me at that point. I was standing there at the gym on my cell phone and I didn't even think twice about it. And it's not like it was planned. And Steve, I feel bad because Steve was really excited to announce that we were going to go on tour with Hawthorne Heights. And when he said that to me, I said, you know what, man, Um, I don't think I'm going to be a part of this tour. I think I'm going to be finished we hadn't really been doing a ton before that but now we were kind of turning the heat back up and bellin let us know hey i think we're kind of doing too much i think this is a good time for me to bow out i don't think we were mad at bellin he had his own band gene the werewolf which had started before he even joined punchline and it was pretty plain to see that he wasn't totally psyched about touring anymore but once again we were in a position of having to replace a member of the band. I know that Steve and I were still all in, and how could we not be? We had a back catalog of albums that we are proud of. We had fans all over the place, and we were getting offered cool tours. But I do think we were worried about how it looked that we kept losing members, like we couldn't keep our band together. Uh, I remember exactly where I was when Steve called me, and he told me that Bell and quit. Now we are once again in scramble mode to find a guitarist to a certain degree because we wanted to do that next door. And uh, I remember I was driving down the road close to where I actually live now. 
and I was talking to Steve and I remember saying something along the lines of, man, I have a crazy idea. And I remember before I even said what my crazy idea was, Steve said something like, I think I have the same idea. On the next episode of A Band Called Punchline. Delightfully pleased. Hey, everybody. I really hope that you're all enjoying the A Band Called Punchline podcast. Big thanks go out to everyone who contributed to all the episodes so far and to you for listening to them. And hey, depending on when you listen to this episode, you might still be able to grab a copy of Just Say Yes on vinyl. TDR Records pressed 500 of them on some different variants, and the layout is gorgeous. So if you'd like to get a hold of one before they're gone, head over to tdrrecords.com. And if you'd like to support us and help us continue making music, head on over to punchlinemusic.com where there's some links to our band camp, our merch store, our website, our TikTok, our music special, and even a calculator that shows you how many days old you are. Don't forget to leave a band called Punchline a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And hey, send it to a friend who you think might enjoy the listen. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll talk to you all again real soon.